Today, we're entering a feature set in the world of Chicago where we're following serial killer John Wayne Gacy for a special Halloween show. So don't move a muscle. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unproduced Table Read here on the Popcorn Talk Network. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a show where we read Hollywood's hottest unproduced pilots and feature scripts. And today we're reading a feature, as I mentioned, called Oriel Park. It's kind of an interesting coming-of-age story. Um, On one level, it's kind of about the Chicago immigrant experience. And on another level, it's kind of a brutal thriller about John Wayne Gacy. So I think (laughs) it mixes a really kind of interesting mix of tones. And we will have the writers, Amelia Estelle Delos and Eric Eric B. Anderson calling in um, after we read it. They're in Chicago as well. So I think they're watching right now. So guys, we're excited to talk to you soon. And we're excited to read your script. Um, But in the meantime, guys, my name is Jeff Graham. Um, If you want to find me online, you can do that at Jeffrey C. Graham, where you can pitch me a script. And I have a group of amazing actors that I'm sitting with who I would love to be introduced as well. Um, hi, I'm Steve Kaufman. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Kaufman. That is K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N. I'm voicing mainly Gus, but also a couple other folks. you got to stick with me to see. Hey, everybody. I'm Andrew Guy. Today I'll be reading for John Wayne Gacy, Anthony, Nick, Sean, and the announcer. Hey, I'm Haley O'Connor. I'm reading Teresa. What's up, everybody? I am Timothy Michael. You can find me everywhere at I am Timothy Mike, and I will be reading Mike, Boy, Greg, and a few other roles. Hi everyone, I'm Adrian Snow. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Adrian Snow. I'll be reading for Yaya, Kimberly, Don, Vanna, and Mike's mom. Hey guys, I'm Roxy Stryer. You can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer, and I'll be reading for Alicia, Karen, Waitress, Mrs. K, Mrs. Rosick, radio announcer, dispatcher, female news anchor. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween! <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am very excited for today's show. I wanted to make sure that I sort of um, at least tried to produce sort of a creepy show for our Halloween. Thank you, know, you so much. You're welcome, yeah. guys. You're welcome. Um, but I, uh, I think this script is more than that. I think this could have just been a slasher horror movie, and I think it's much more interested and in something deeper. Yeah, for sure. So I'm excited to get into it, and I say we do that right now. Bring it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Oriel Park. It's a feature written by Amelia Estelle Delos and Eric B. Anderson, and here we go. Interior. Greek Orthodox Church, Sanctuary Dusk. Flickering candlelight dances across the face of Teresa, early teens. Her face is round, babyish, but her eyes betray her age. She's a duckling, teetering on the edge of becoming a swan. She fixes her sweater, tentatively steps toward the rows of flickering prayer candles on the altar. She glances back over her shoulder and sees her father, Gus, 40s, a bear of a man, unkempt and unshaven, sitting slumped in a pew, staring off into space. Before she can get his attention, her yaya, which is Greek for grandmother, an elderly woman dressed head to toe in black, moves in beside her. She nudges Teresa and motions for her to go ahead. Teresa nods, clutches the photo in her hand more tightly, and steps up to the altar. Interior Greek Orthodox Church pews dusk. Though physically in the church, Gus is somewhere far, far away, as betrayed by the range of emotion playing across his face. His eyes begin to well up. He roughly brushes a tear off of his cheek and closes his eyes, and behind him, a man clears his throat. Gus snaps out of it and turns. A middle-aged couple is looking at him expectantly. He looks around and realizes that the row ahead of him are empty. The rows ahead of him are empty, and it's his row's turn to step forward. So he stands up. Interior Greek Orthodox Church Sanctuary, dusk. Teresa and Yaya set photos on the altar. Yaya's is a faded wedding picture, and Teresa's is a Polaroid 
of her mother. They each light a candle. Yaya lays a hand on Teresa's shoulder, and she turns Teresa toward her, pressing her forehead to Teresa's. Receive also from your child this evening prayer. Shelter her under the protection of your wings that I may lay down in peace and sleep. There's a commotion in the pews, and Teresa glances back again in time to see the throat-clearing man being helped up off the floor as the church doors close behind Gus. Yaya shakes her head and curses softly in Greek. She closes her eyes and takes a deep breath. They exit the church, and Yaya, keeping a hand on Teresa's elbow, both as comfort and to steady herself, with the familiarity that says they've done this a hundred times before. Interior, Teresa's kitchen, night. The sky outside their windows is pitch black. Teresa empties a bag onto the counter as Yaya checks her recipe, ticking off the items she needs. Chicken, lemons, garlic. She grabs an empty bottle of ouzo off the table and she shakes it. Empty. Interior big top diner night. The end of the busy dinner rush. The bell over the door rings and Teresa walks in. A waitress, early 40s, behind the counter, smiles as Teresa approaches. Hey, T, how are you? Teresa shrugs. How's your dad? We miss him every day. The new owner won't even comp us a meal. Uh, I, I'm, I keep meaning to check in. Teresa's heard all this before, so she interrupts. Yeah, yeah, needs... The waitress stops her. She reaches under the counter and pulls out a flask with a label written in Greek. Don't tell anybody. We never did get that liquor license. Thanks. Sure thing, sweetie. Exterior, Oriel Park neighborhood, night. Teresa hurries home under the glow of street lamps, clutching the flask, her breath visibly cold in the night air. She turns down Oriel Avenue and pauses at a stop sign for a car to pass. She continues on, past a parked car with the engine idling, as with two dark figures seated inside. We stay with the car. Interior car, night. A groovy soft rock tune plays quietly on the radio. John Wayne Gacy. In his late 30s, despite being intimidating, he has a childlike quality in his eyes that gives him a certain charm, sits behind the wheel. He passes a joint to an athletic 15-year-old boy in the passenger seat. The top two buttons on the boy's shirt are open, revealing a gold cross dangling from a chain. Gacy's eyes linger on the boy's chest, but the boy doesn't notice. The boy takes a long drag from the joint and smiles. He hands it back to Gacy as he slowly releases the smoke from his lungs. <laughs> Man, this is the best job interview ever. <laughs> Gacy sits up, raises an eyebrow, but doesn't say anything. The boy, sensing he said the wrong thing, fumbles for conversation. I just mean, you're like the coolest boss ever, you know? Yeah, well, kid, you don't have the job yet. Shaking his head, Gacy smirks and puts the joint to his lips. He takes a drag. So, uh, <clears throat> what? You wrestle? Huh? Your muscle tone. You, you look like a wrestler. Oh, I was, but I didn't make the team this year. <laughs> Come on, that, that can't be right. Flex for me. The boy hesitates, but still flexes for Gacy. Gacy squeezes his biceps. Those are some solid muscles you got there, son. Sensing the boy's discomfort, Gacy laughs a genuine hearty laugh. <laughs> the boy relaxes and grins, and Gacy continues to smile as he looks the boy over, but something in his eyes shifts. The car gets quiet, and Gacy notices the boy looking at the joint in his hand. Gacy tries to pass it back to him, but the boy nervously fumbles and drops it. The joint falls to the floor behind the seat. Oh, man. Sorry. <laughs> I got it. As he leans between the seats, he notices a pair of handcuffs. 
As he picks up the joint, he grabs the handcuffs and holds them up. What are these for? Interior Gacy's living room night. A record on a turntable rotates. The same soft rock song that was playing in the car continues quietly in the background. The camera travels through the dimly lit hallway, passing brightly colored paintings to the bedroom. It's messy. The bed is unmade. Gacy stands in front of the closet, selecting a tie from his collection. He's dressed in a silky black shirt and and dark slacks, ready for a night out. He puts his hand in his pocket and pulls something out. He walks over to a dresser and opens the top drawer, and it's filled with an array of high school rings, watches, necklaces, car keys. He places the boy's gold cross on top. We continue with him to the bathroom, where Gacy puts on a white tie in front of the mirror, then slicks back his hair. He checks the buttons on his shirt, adjusts his tie, pulls his pants up, and he goes to tighten his belt. Gacy walks back to the bed. The end of the belt peeks out from under the bed, and Gacy kneels, tugs on the belt, but it's stuck on something. Gacy reaches under the bed and pulls out the boy's lifeless corpse. His shirt is off, his hands cuffed behind his back, and the belt pulled tightly around his neck. Gacy calmly loosens the belt and pulls it off of the dead boy, and he stuffs the body back under the bed and walks to the door. He shuts off the light, leaving us in the dark. Title over black, Chicago, 1978. Exterior city street day. Teresa watches the cracks in the sidewalk as she walks down the street, hugging a stack of books tightly to her chest. Teresa's best friend, Alicia, 15, a baby-faced and pudgy Puerto Rican girl, walks beside her, chattering in her ear. Almost a week. Huh? I said my neighbor, he's been missing almost a week. His mom called the cops and everything. Wait, what? Who are you talking about? Alicia looks up at the sky, sighs heavily, and says something in Spanish under her breath. Unseen by Teresa and Alicia, Kimberly, a tween girl who looks like she's been playing in her mom's makeup, emerges from the house behind them. Anthony, 16, going on 30, appears seconds later, giving chase. Yo, wait up! Kimberly whirls around to see Anthony, and the f- Anthony... Kimberly whirls around to give Anthony the finger and knocks hard into Teresa, sending her books to the ground. Kimberly turns on Teresa, ready for a fight. Watch where you're going, dumb shit. Anthony picks up one of Teresa's books and turns it over. A well-worn copy of The Cosmic Connection by Carl Sagan. Sorry. Yeah, you are. Anthony tries to hand the book back to Teresa, but Kimberly grabs it from him and tosses it in the middle of the street where it lands open, its pages fluttering in the wind. Alicia protectively moves between Teresa and Kimberly. Leave us alone. You want some? Kimberly shoves Alicia as Hector and Don, the rest of the wolf pack, emerge from the house. What's up, greasy? Shower much? Is it true the Greek girls like it in the park? Teresa's pleading eyes lock with Anthony's as the pack closes and, circle, and circles around the girls. Anthony smirks, but out of the corner of his eyes, he sees a police cl- cruiser coming their way. Sergeant Vanna, mid-40s, gives the light a quick flicker, and that's enough. Anthony steps back and puts his arms around Kimberly. She shrugs him off, but follows as he motions for everyone else to leave. Hector leers at Teresa, making a circle with one hand, and rams a finger through it before backing away, joining the crew. Vanna stops the car in the middle of the street and gets out. He picks up Teresa's book and hands it to her. You girls all right? Tea? Teresa nods, but she's holding back emotion. Can I give you a ride? Teresa shakes her head, and Alicia shoots her an exasperated look, steps towards Vanna. Yes, please. Interior salon day. The door swings shut as the day's last customer exits. Teresa sweeps Teresa hair, Teresa sweeps hair into a pile while Alicia refills shampoo bottles. Karen, an old 30, peroxide blonde salon manager, snips and trims her own hair in the mirror. She takes a bottle of mousse, fills her palm, and rubs it through her hair. Teresa steals glances back at the mirror, watching Karen work. 
Karen steps back and catches Teresa watching her in the mirror. Take a picture. It'll last longer. Teresa drops her eyes and goes back to sweeping. The door swings open, and Nikki, Teresa's older brother, walks in. He's Teresa's opposite. Street smart and wary. Nothing tentative about him. He shoots Teresa a look that says, I'm not here, and disappears into the back room with Karen. Alicia looks over at Teresa and snorts an imaginary line of coke. Teresa shakes her head and starts to unfold the towels. It's true. Watch. Nikki comes out first and looks at Teresa. You didn't see me, got it? (laughs) Teresa nods and Nikki exits as quickly as he came. Moments later, Karen reappears, rubbing her nose, sniffling. Alicia grins at Teresa, but Karen notices and steps over to her. When was the last time you changed the barbicide? Well, mine's totally disgusting. The last thing we need is for the clients to get lice or God knows what else because you're too lazy to do your job. So you need to check it every day. Comprende? Si, senora. When Karen turns back, Alicia snorts again, and Karen glares at her over her shoulder. What? I got a cold. Interior Teresa's house, kitchen, day. The kitchen table is littered with the trappings of a low-level bookmaking operation. Phones, piles of money, pencils, and papers filled with names and numbers and stacks of sports pages. Yaya stands at the stove and sprinkles herbs into a pot. Teresa enters from the living room and gives her a kiss on the cheek. Teresa nods toward an empty chair at the table next to a liquor bottle, an empty glass, and a full ashtray. Where's Dad? Yaya shrugs. Teresa crosses the kitchen to the fridge in search of a snack. She opens the fridge. Close that. It'll ruin your appetite. Exterior, Teresa's house day. A car pulls up in front of the house, and Sean, 30s, a lean whippet of a man, is behind the wheel. Gus is in the passenger seat with a fast food bag on his lap. Sean reaches into the bag to grab a french fry, but Gus pulls the bag back. Those are for tea. Gus throws open the door and gets out. Grab the drinks. It's barely noticeable, but Gus is a little unsteady on his feet as he walks toward the house. When he sees that Sean isn't out of the car yet, he calls back. You didn't move on, boy, yo. Sean turns off the car and gets out. I don't sound like that. Your accent sucks. (laughs) Without turning around, Gus raises his hand and flips Sean off. Sean grins and shakes his head. Interior Teresa's house, kitchen, day. The back door bangs open and Gus enters, the fast food bag in his hand. He surveys the scene as Sean follows him inside, carrying a tray of drinks. Jesus, I go out to get dinner and come home, find, come home, this one in the fridge, and that one cooking. To Yaya? What are you doing? I told you I was getting the food. That's not food. (laughs) Gus sighs and shakes his head. He sets down the bag and begins unpacking hamburgers and fries, and he holds out one of the bags of fries to Teresa. Instead of taking it, she moves to the stove, putting Yaya between herself and her father. Yaya hands her the spoon, and Teresa stirs. Gus sets the fires. Gus sets the fries down on the table. You've seen your brother? Nothing. Tea. No response. Earth to Teresa. Snapping his fingers. Hey! She jumps and turns to him. I said, did you see your brother? Teresa shakes her head. Gus grunts and rests his hand on the table, accidentally knocking the fries to the floor where they scatter. Shit. Clean those up. I I got it. No, she can do it. But Sean said... Gus locks eyes with her. You can do it. Silence, then... Why? Why what? Teresa knows better than to answer, but does anyway. Why can't he do it? Why can't you do it? You knocked them over. Gus storms toward her in a sudden fury, and Teresa recoils, but Yaya steps between them, defiantly locking eyes with Gus. Gus steps back, swallows his rage, and smiles wanly. Fine. 
That's just fine. Fine. He walks back to the table as Yaya turns to the stove. <clears throat> Gus takes one of the drinks out of the tray and offers it to Teresa, but she shakes her head. The Fury returns with a vengeance, and he throws the cup at the wall, spraying its contents everywhere. Teresa stands frozen in a stunned silence as splatter from the cup drips down her bare arm. Sean is around the table and in an instant grabs Gus's arm. Teresa, the spell broken, runs past Gus and flees through the back door. What's the matter with you? Your wife is turning over in her grave. Gus sits down, unwraps a hamburger, and begins to eat. Yaya follows Teresa out the back door, but she's already on her bike, fading into the distance. Interior, hospital, children's ward, dusk. As his alter ego, Pogo the Clown... Gacy entertains a group of sick children. The garish, bright makeup is the stuff of nightmares for many adults. But the kids? They're eating it up. Gacy produces a multicolored flower from his pocket and eats it. As the children look on, he magically pulls a long clown scarf with the same colors out of his mouth. The kids smile and laugh, and as the excitement dies down, Gacy produces the handcuffs we saw earlier, dangling them from his fingertips. Want to see another trick? Exterior hospital parking lot, night. Gacy heads to the car, a nurse trailing behind him, trying to get his attention. Mr. Gacy, hold on a minute. He stops, turns to her, shrinking back from her like a little boy about to be scolded for stealing a cookie. I just wanted to say thank you. They, they never smile like that. He smiles, about to say something, but she looks at him directly in the eye with genuine gratitude. God bless you, Mr. Gacy. He smiles, speechless, because this clearly means the world to him. Exterior Alicia's house night. Teresa rides her bike up to the two-bedroom post-war Georgian. She jumps off and runs to the front door, but pauses at the sound of laughter coming from inside. Through the front window, she sees Alicia and her large family around the dinner table, passing dishes back and forth, laughing and teasing each other. Alicia's mom pops up, takes a pot off the stove, but before she serves Alicia, she gently kisses the top of her head. Something in Teresa cracks. Slowly she turns, walks to her bike, picks it up, and hops on and rides off into the night. Exterior. Oriel Avenue, night. Teresa glides down her street, lost in her thoughts, clearly still upset. She turns sharply, unaware that she's going into the path of an oncoming car. Tires screech as the car slams on its brakes, stopping inches from hitting Teresa. She tumbles off her bike, hitting the ground hard. For a moment, she just lays there, but then she slowly, she stirs and gets up, squinting into the headlights at a surreal vision. Gacy is behind the wheel, still in full clown makeup. In the dark, his mouth is an oversized gash of red, and the dark blue around his eyes makes them disappear into the white grease paint, so that he looks like a demonic grinning skull. Teresa, frozen in place, releases a shocked laugh. Gacy steps out of the car, and Teresa scrambles to her feet, grabs her bike, and instinctively backs away. She examines her arm. Luckily, no bruises. I'm so sorry I didn't see you. Gacy takes a step towards her, his expression blank. He's about to say something... But Teresa is off on her bike, racing away towards her house. Gacy watches her for a moment, a blank expression on his face. The street is quiet, the only sound, the low rumble of his car engine. A loud school bell shatters the silence, bringing us into Interior Oriole Park School Classroom Day. The classroom buzzes with teen hormones and nervous energy. Teresa enters tentatively and finds Alicia, plopping a notebook covered in glittery stars on the desk next to her. Anthony and his crew huddle in the back, and Anthony pretends to listen to his friends. But his eyes are on Teresa. Mrs. K, 40s, a no-nonsense public school teacher, appraises her room. She puts on her glasses and scans the class roster. We have someone new to the school. Michael Williams, where are you? Quietly, a boy in the back corner raises his hand. It's just Mike. What was that? Can you please stand up and repeat yourself, Michael? 
Grudgingly, he stands. This attention is clearly painful for Mike. He's a broody, dreamy, 21 Jump Street era Johnny Depp. Dark hair, dark eyes, faded denim jacket, and of course, Converse high tops. You can call me Mike. Michael. I will not call you anything but Michael until you speak up and mind your manners. Please call me Mike. Look at that. You just learned something and the day hasn't even begun. (laughs) My name is Mrs. Kiana Pakowski. But to make it easier on you and my ears, you can call me Mrs. K. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike? Mike looks like he'd rather dissolve into the floor. Teresa notices Teresa notices this, and as if to save him, she raises her hand. Yes? Can I use the bathroom? Yes, Teresa. I'm certain you can. May I use the bathroom? <laughs> and you may. Just take just Mike along <laughs> for the walk. Teresa slumps back into her seat, and the kids all snicker around. But Mrs. K silences them with her withering gaze. The kids stare at the floor under her harsh gaze. And give our newest student a little orientation when you're finished. Be back in ten minutes. She turns her back to the class, puts her hand on her heart. The students stand and join uh, her as Teresa and Mike slip out. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. Interior Oriole Park School hallway. The hallway is empty, and Teresa tries to open a combination lock. Her hands are shaking a bit as Mike stares at her. Sure you don't want any help? I got this. She spins the lock, but when she pulls it, it won't budge. Just let me do it. What's the combination? But Mrs. K told me to show you. What'll happen if you don't do everything they tell you to do? Teresa drops her shoulders and looks up at the ceiling. Four, thirteen, six. Mike grabs the lock, spins the dial, yanks it free, and pulls it out of the locker. He hands it to her. Move around a lot. I got the locker opening thing down. Well, that's it. You know how to find the bathroom, the lunchroom, and the library. Hey, let's go have a smoke. Teresa stops, looks at him like he just told her to run naked down the hallway. Mike pulls out cigarettes and a lighter. But Mrs. K I'll tell her I couldn't get the lock open. Come on. For a split second, Teresa starts to follow him, but then she quickly changes her mind and she runs back to class. Interior of Teresa's house, kitchen, night. Later that night, through the doorway, we see Teresa staring at the television, bathed in its flickering light. The phone rings, and it keeps ringing. Teresa gets up, comes into the kitchen, flips on the light, and picks up the receiver. Interior, last resort tavern night. Teresa opens the door of the dark tavern to find her father, Gus, hunched over in the bar, his head lolling from side to side, singing a song in Greek. Sean smokes a cigarette and counts out money. A pretty woman in her late 30s sitting next to him is clearly not from the neighborhood. She sees Teresa and deflates. Christ, what are you doing here? You said to come get him. I said to tell your shite brother not... He wasn't home. Sean whispers to the woman, who looks at Teresa and laughs. The woman stands, adjusts her too short skirt, and tugs at her too small shirt to reveal much too much cleavage. (laughs) She downs her drink and grabs Sean around the neck, pulling him towards her. She kisses Sean full on the mouth and lets the kiss linger a beat too long. Finally, she releases him. She gives Teresa a wicked smile, wipes her mouth with her index finger and thumb. The room echoes with the click, click, click of her two high heels as she exits the bar. See you around, kid. Sean sighs as he watches her leave, along with the promise of a pleasurable night. He turns to Teresa, pouring her a Coke. (sighs) Tell me how you plan to get a 20-stone man home. On them handlebars? Nothing? (laughs) Wait here. (laughs) Sean exits. Teresa fumbles the straw into her mouth. No hands. She takes a long, loud slurp and glances at her father. 
He's out cold. She looks up at the black and white TV above the bar. On the screen is Anthony Quinn dancing on the beach in Zorba the Greek. And for a moment, Teresa is absorbed in the movie until... Bullshit. Startled, Teresa looks over to see Gus staring at the screen. His eyes are red-rimmed and glassy. He turns to her. You ever meet a Greek named Zorba? <laughs> Teresa doesn't know what to do, but Gus doesn't wait for her to answer. George, John, Nick, Gus, Gus, Gus. Not one single Zorba. <laughs> he looks at Teresa. You know why they call me guys Gus, right? This time he waits, watching her face intently. Teresa shakes her head. Gus looks like he's going to say something, but instead folds his arms in the bar, drops his head, and goes quiet again. Seconds later, Sean returns with a bungee cord. He stops when he sees Teresa's bewildered expression. Everything all right? Teresa looks baffled and shrugs. Okay, come on then. Exterior alley night. Teresa and Sean awkwardly stuff Gus into the back seat of a gold Trans Am decked out with an American Eagle on the hood. Sean secures Teresa's bike to the top of the car with the bungee cord. He tosses her his keys, but she misses and they jangle to the ground. Teresa looks at him, confused. You're driving. I'm plastered. I can't. Not old enough. (sighs) I have kidney stones that are older than you. Then, silence. Teresa looks at Sean, who grins when Gus begins to snore. It's never too early to learn. Might have to drive a getaway car someday. Teresa tries to hide her excitement and scoops up the keys. Exterior city street night. The Trans Am creeps slowly down the empty street. Interior (laughs) Sean's car night. Sean leans over to help her steer, and the radio cuts in. The body of the unidentified male, late teens, has been found in the Des Plaines River. Sean turns off the radio. You shouldn't be running around alone at night. I'm not. I'm with you. (laughs) Interior Teresa's house, living room, night. Sean and Teresa wrestle Gus inside. Get off me, I can walk. Gus bats Sean's arm away and takes a step, stumbling, but Sean catches him. Gus gives Sean the side eye, but allows Sean to help him to the couch, where he flops face down and instantly begins to snore. Sean blows out a breath, tongue hanging out. (sighs) Bloody hell. What are you feeding him, bricks? (laughs) Teresa's eyes dart to Gus, passed out on the couch. An unwanted tear appears in the corner of her eye. Calm now, don't do that. It'll be all right. He wipes away her tear. You know, if you smiled more and were a little bit less of a bit... He can't find the word, but it's clear what he means. A little less her. Never mind. I'm, I'm, I'm shite. Something shifts in <coughs> Teresa's eyes, making Sean uncomfortable. Uh, anyways, night. Sean kisses Teresa on the forehead and leaves. As Teresa watches him go, she catches a glimpse of herself in the mirror. In it, we see Teresa slowly approach. She examines herself impassively, studying her nose, her chin, her hair, and her eyes. She takes off her glasses and runs a hand through her hair, pinching both cheeks, giving them a blush. She strikes a pose at an angle, the way she saw Karen do it in the salon. Interior, Gacy's house, night. Greg Ruzik, 20, a handsome kid with wavy, sandy blonde hair, follows Gacy inside, carrying bags of supplies. Thanks, Mr. Gacy. I really appreciate the work. You haven't seen the job yet. Greg follows Gacy down a long, dark hallway. As they progress, the two men are swallowed by blackness. Then, click, an overhead bulb bursts to life, revealing Gacy, facing Greg, their chests almost touching. Startled, Greg jerks back, nearly falling over, until Gacy grabs his arm and steadies him. Greg sees an empty closet with exposed floorboards and a rusted shovel leaning against the wall. Gacy kneels down, feels the edges of the closet, and he pulls out a square section of the floor, opening a narrow hole just large enough for a man to get into. Greg recoils from the foul stench and claps a hand over his mouth, gagging. (laughs) I told you. 
Gacy reaches past Greg, his hand brushing against Greg's thigh, into the bag, pulling out several drainage tiles. He grabs the shovel and nods toward the hole in the floor. After you. Greg hesitates for a moment, expecting Gacy to move. He doesn't, forcing Greg to squeeze past him, their bodies touching as he lowers himself into the murky darkness. Gacy watches Greg disappear, then he follows. We hold on the entrance to the crawlspace for an excruciatingly long beat, listening to their muffled voices, their arms and legs scraping in the dirt as they move. Interior kitchen night. Silence. The house is dark. The light from the street lights barely illuminates the outlines of a chair, a table. Footsteps shuffle into the room, getting louder until fluorescent lights pop and flicker to life. We now see Greg, filthy and exhausted, placing his tool belt on the table where there's a sandwich and a glass of milk set out for him. As he washes his hands in the the kitchen sink, he hears his mother, Mrs. Ruzik, 50s, appear in the doorway. Dressed in a purple velour house coat and fluffy slippers, her tired, lonely eyes light up at the sight of her pride and joy. So, how'd it go? Greg nods, taking a seat. She leans in, goes to kiss the top of his head, but recoils. Oh, you stink to high heaven. What exactly are you doing over there, rolling in dog shit? Greg nearly finished... Finishes the glass of milk with one long gulp, wipes his mouth with the back of his hand. Just digging trenches under the house. Mrs. Ruzik shakes her head, hands him the napkin on the table right in front of him, and he rubs his entire face with it, crumpling it into a ball. Trenches? For what? I don't know. Something about drainage tiles? You didn't ask? Ma, I don't ask a lot of questions. He tells me what to do and I just do it. Mrs. Ruzik retreats, putting up her hands in surrender. Just... Put your dishes in the sink and turn off the lights when you're done. Greg brings a sandwich to his mouth but doesn't take a bite. Night. She turns to leave. Hey, Ma. Mrs. Ruzik stops in her tracks. What does he want now? Love you. A smile breaks across her face. Love you, too. Greg smiles as he stuffs the sandwich into his mouth. Interior, Oriel Park School, cafeteria kitchen, day. Mrs. Ruzik carries two large baking sheets. She works alongside two other portly, middle-aged lunch ladies. They spoon tater tots onto pea green lunch trays, place hockey puck-sized state-issued hamburgers onto buns. Teresa moves through the lunch lines, and she listens as the lunch ladies talk over each other. Yeah, just started with a contractor over Summerdale. Greg's got two jobs now. How's it that I can't get my food for nothing, son off the couch, and you got a son with two jobs? What can I say? Good parenting is all. Hello, Mrs. T. Uh, Did you get that tuna casserole I sent over? Yeah, thanks. Interior cafeteria day. Teresa's eyes search the room for safe harbor, and she spots an empty table in the corner. She sits down and scoots in her chair. Hey, smart girl. Teresa looks up and sees that it's Mike. Anyone sitting there? But Anthony suddenly glides into the seat next to Teresa. She tenses up, looks up at Mike, and shakes her head. Dejected, Mike takes an open seat at the next table. What's up? Want to come hang out at the park later? Um, <laughs> I, I can't. I'm going to st- hang out with Alicia. You sure? Yeah, sorry. Anthony goes quiet, looks at Teresa, just long enough to make her uncomfortable. Then Alicia steps up to the table. Move it, meatball. You going to be able to sit down with that taco shoved all the way up your butt? I am Puerto Rican. Your boy over there is Mexican. Same fucking thing. (laughs) No, you meatball, it's not. It's Canada, the U.S., then Mexico. Puerto Rico is like a totally different country, way out next to Cuba. Haiti, the Dominican Republic. (laughs) Alicia puts down her tray, and Anthony stands up and walks away. Did you have to do that? Do what? 
Interior, Teresa's house, kitchen, day. Gus listens to music on the radio and makes marks on a racing form. Sean tinkers with the police scanner. Police radio chatters suddenly, police radio chatter suddenly fills the air. We have a 1016 in progress on Oriole and Foster. Do we have a car in the vicinity? Sean looks pleased with himself. Nikki enters and tosses his books on the floor with a thud. What are you, an animal? Pick those up. Nikki picks up the books and tosses them on a chair. He walks over to the table and checks out its stack of 20 bills. He peels one off the top. What the hell are you doing? I need gas money. Gas? Gus pulls the money out of Nikki's hand. Little boys steal money. Men earn it. Nikki picks up one of the notepads and flips through it. Okay, who do you want me to call? Gus snatches the notebook out of his hand. That's my business, not yours. But I could help you collect. I already have help. Nikki shoots daggers at Sean, who pretends to ignore him. I got a different job for you. Your mother's garden garden beds are falling apart. You're going to fix them. There's a point. Gus gets very still, a cobra waiting to strike. What did you say? Nikki shakes his head, and he remains silent. What did you say to me? I, I said that, what's the point? Dead people don't plant gardens, Dad. There's no reason to be in Gus them. rumbles out of his chair. He grabs Nikki by the nape of the neck. Nikki tries to squirm away, but he can't. They remain locked in combat for a long, tense moment. Then, Gus shakes his head and laughs ruefully. He returns to the table and sits. He locks eyes with Nikki as he peels two 20s off of a stack and holds the money out to Nick. Earn it. Nikki takes it and turns to leave. Take your sister with you so I know you'll come back. As Nikki exits. And bring back the change. Interior hardware store day. Greg Ruzik mans the register at the front as Teresa roams through the store, absentmindedly plucking things off of the shelf, examining them, replacing them. She rounds a corner into a new aisle and nearly runs into a heavyset man in his 50s, Bill, the store's owner. He grabs her by the shoulders and keeps her from falling. Careful now. Lots of sharp edges in here. He releases her, and she moves away fast, rubbing her arms. Anthony enters from the back of the store, holding a broom. He suddenly... He stops when he suddenly sees her. Hey. Hi. Anthony looks and sees Bill watching them. Mm-hmm. The grin disappears. I got it. you know. Yeah. Hey, dummy. Nikki comes up behind Teresa with a short stack of two fours slung over... Sh- of, of two by four slung over <laughs> his shoulder. Let's go. Teresa smiles shyly at Anthony, mouthing, Bye. Anthony nods as they near the front door. It pushes open, and Gacy enters. Hey, uh, you think you can help me get this stuff into my truck? As he passes, Gacy notices Teresa looking at him, and he winks. She involuntarily shrinks away, hurrying out the door. Anthony stops what he's doing to watch her go. Behind him, Bill clears his throat loudly, and Anthony sighs and picks up the broom, exaggeratedly pretending to sweep. Bill shakes his head and disappears into the back of the store. Interior hardware store office. Bill enters his office, looking over a stack of receipts, and then glances at his desk. Something's not right. The middle drawer is slightly open. Bill's face fills with worry as he walks to the desk and opens the drawer. He checks inside, relieved. But we can feel someone watching Bill through the half-open door. Bill removes an envelope of photographs. He takes out one and stares at it, overcome with emotion, his eyes welling up. But then he senses someone at the door and quickly shoves the envelope back inside. When he looks up, there's no one in the doorway. But we see Anthony quickly disappear down the hallway. Interior car day. Nikki lights a cigarette, blasts the car radio. Teresa puts on lip balm. As she puts the cap back on, she accidentally drops it under the seat. She reaches for it, but finds a bag of pot instead. What's this? Oregano. (laughs) Nikki grabs the bag from her and tucks it under his seat. Teresa senses that she's being teased. But about what? She has no idea, so she forces a laugh and she shakes her head. Uh, As they turn... 
As they turn into a wealthy neighborhood of tree-lined streets, wide blue skies, and perfectly manicured lawns, Teresa gazes out the window at the mansions passing by. You just know that nothing bad ever happens here. (laughs) Exterior, North Shore, street, day. Teresa leans against the car, watching two kids play in the sprinkler on the front lawn of a massive house. In soft focus, we can see Nikki on the front steps of another house, taking something from a dark-haired teenage boy. Teresa's lost in the moment, and she barely notices a preppy rich kid approaching her. What's up? Your boyfriend? Oh, mm. gross. He's like my brother. That's cool. Not from around here. Nope. What, you're like a city girl? Wrong side of the tracks, born in the mean streets of Chicago? Teresa can't tell if he's just trying to get a rise out of her, so she stays quiet. He takes out a joint and a lighter. Teresa looks at Nikki. He's oblivious, negotiating his deal. The rich kid sparks it and takes a hit, then offers it to Teresa, but she shakes her head. The rich kid laughs, insisting. <laughs> come on, city girl, that makes the sex better. I need to go help my brother. Oh, come on, I'm just fucking with you. Don't act, don't act like you're some kind of virgin or something. Teresa tries to shake loose, but he won't let go. Come on, don't be a bitch. Then he sees something over her shoulder and he lets go. It's Nikki coming their way. Teresa is relieved and backs toward the car, but Nikki ignores her, pulls a dime out of... Uh, Nikki ignores her, pulls a dime bad of weed out from his pocket. Same as last week? Yeah. Sure. He pulls a 10 from his wallet and hands it to Nikki in exchange for the bag. Teresa tugs on the back of Nikki's shirt. Can we go now? I've got two more down the street. I can keep her company. Come on, please. Nikki swipes her hand away, but then sees the terrified look in her eyes. He swallows, conflicted. Fuck. Okay, let's go. Rich kid waves at Teresa as she gets in the car. See you next week. Nikki guns the engine. The car lurches forward suddenly, causing Rich Kid to jump back. Nikki slams the car into reverse and peels out. Interior car, day. The mood in the car is quiet. It's tense. After a moment... I'm never bringing you with me again. Sorry. No, just... No. You're too good for that shit. Before she can respond, Nikki turns on the radio. Teresa turns toward the window and tries to hide a smile. What? Nothing. Don't do that. You look goofy. (laughs) Interior, Teresa's living room night. Teresa and Nikki enter. It's quiet. Yaya is asleep in the glow glow of the television, and Gus is nowhere to be seen. Nikki drops the stuff off from the hardware store on the floor and doesn't even slow down before heading out the back door. Teresa goes into the kitchen and finds a pot on the stove. She lifts the lid, disappointed to see that it's picked clean. She turns to put a pot in the sink and smiles to see a perfect little plate prepared by Yaya on her table. Teresa creeps into the living room with her dinner, careful not to wake Yaya. She sits down next to her. Then there's a thump from upstairs. Startled, Teresa puts down the plate and waits, listening. Nervous, she creeps up the stairs to find a light emanating from Gus's bedroom at the end of the hall. Interior Gus's bedroom, night. Teresa's face appears at the door. She sees the back of Gus's head, his arm dangling over the armset of the recliner. The source of the thump? A bottle of beer pooling its contents on the floor next to the chair where it fell. Teresa creeps in, trying not to make a sound, and Gus's eyes are closed, his mouth slack. The end table next to him is littered with bills, and on top is a hospital bill with her mother's name. Maria Deliopoulos, and a red past due stamp. Poking out from beneath it is an envelope with the word foreclosure in bold red letters. A slide projector tray is resting on Gus's lap, several loose slides scattered at his feet. Teresa picks up a slide and holds it up to the light. A ghostly, translucent image of Maria, Teresa, and Nikki makes her smile, even as her eyes well with tears. She sits on the floor at her father's feet, picks up another, lost in a life that no longer exists. Gus suddenly lifts his head and blinks. 
Teresa stops the slide, sh- the slide, jumps up, and tries to make a quick escape, but she catches her elbow hard in the doorframe and lets out a yelp. She was so beautiful. He glances at Teresa, and his smile falters. He puts down the slide and picks up a beer bottle and gives it a small shake to see if there's anything left inside. Finding it empty, he picks up another, and striking gold this time, he takes a long pull. Teresa stands behind him. Finally, Gus picks up another slide, holds it up to the light, and he nods at Teresa, motioning her closer. She moves in, sits down on the floor. The next slide shows a very young Gus and Maria at some kind of mixer. Gus has a shit-eating grin, and Maria is mid-laugh at something he's just said. The first night I met her, she was on a date with another fella. Teresa looks up at him, startled by the realization that her parents had a life before her, that there might have been a time when they were young. It was the Friday night. An Ehepa event. Ehepa? If you didn't want your theater to arrange a marriage to some girl in the village with one tooth and a crooked eye, <laughs> you went to that dance to meet Greek girls. He drains the beer bottle. The room was packed. I saw one table with two empty seats, and I dragged my buddy over to it. Gus pauses. Teresa is captivated by his story. And? And what? I sat down. Gus pulls out a cigarette and puts it in his mouth. He looks around for his lighter. Did you ask her to dance? Like I told you, she was on a date with the only guy in the place who wasn't a Greek. Unable to locate a lighter, he takes it out of his mouth and holds it between his fingers like a conductor holds a baton. Um, why was he there? As far as your mom, your mom and me were concerned, he wasn't. We spent the whole night talking and laughing like, like we were the only people in the room. Hmm. And then what? You asked for her number? <laughs> Gus spies the lighter on the end table next to his chair, and he sticks the unlit cigarette in his mouth. Then I fought the duel with her date for her hand and dragged her out by her hair. What? Gus lights the cigarette and takes a long drag and blows it out. (laughs) The next day, I looked her up in the phone book. I called her, took her out. Three weeks later, I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. She said no. The first five times. (laughs) Why? I don't know. I I was one charming mother. She was confused. I guess. Teresa shakes her head. Gus leans in and gently puts his hand on her cheek. Teresa, Moo, you will come to find out that being a grown-up is a complicated thing, and your mother was a complicated woman. He sits back. But she loved you. Before Gus can answer, the doorbell rings and the intimate moment evaporates. Gus waves his hand towards the door. Go see who it is. The doorbell rings again, but Teresa doesn't move fast enough. Go! Teresa disappears into the hallway. Gus stands up and pulls his shirt over his white undershirt. Exterior, Teresa's house, night. Vanna has a tight grip on Nikki's arm. He presses the doorbell again, and finally the door opens. Teresa. Your old man around? He's uh, upstairs. Loud footsteps approach as Gus appears in the doorway as Gus finishes buttoning his shirt. I'm right here. He sees Nikki and lets out a hiss of profanities in Greek. It's after curfew. Gus steps onto the porch and pulls Nikki into the house by his neck. He turns back to Vanna and steadies himself on the doorknob. Okay, you did your duty. Thank you, officer. Sergeant. Gus scoffs, but Vanna doesn't move. Got a smoke? Yeah. Gus is a little confused, but he goes with it. He pats his shirt when he finds a pocket with his cigarettes, and he fumbles with a pack and shakes one out and offers it to Sergeant Vanna. Gus taps another cigarette out, perches it in the corner of his mouth, and he pats his pockets for the lighter. Before he can locate it, Vanna strikes a match. He lights Gus's cigarette, Gus's cigarette, and then his own. Two on a match is bad luck. I think it's three. You sure? Nope. <laughs> Gus sighs, looking up at the sky out on the street. Anywhere but looking at Vanna. They stand in silence until 
Finally, if someone would have told me that I'd be hauling one of your kids home in a squad car, I would have called them a liar. Before, I mean. Well, young men do dumb shit. Yeah, young men. <laughs> there was a time when I actually envied you. You know that? Thought you were one lucky son of a bitch. Two good kids, successful business, beautiful wife. Gus's eyes are suddenly very focused. He takes a long drag off of his cigarette. I'm the American fucking dream. <laughs> a long silence, neither man willing to make the next move. You need to get your house in order, Gus. Gus stubs out his cigarette on the windowsill, and he takes a step toward Vanna. Whether to punch him or to hug him is anyone's guess. He puts his hand on Vanna's shoulder, and he pats it. Good night, officer. It's Sergeant. Get the fuck off my poor Sergeant. <laughs> Gus opens his door, and he steps inside. Exterior, Oriole Park, day. Teresa and Alicia walk past Anthony and his crew hanging out on a bench. They're smoking, jamming to music on a boombox. Hey, wait up. Against his better judgment, against her better judgment, Teresa stops and she turns. Alicia can't believe what she's seeing. Hey. What's up? Uh, I don't know, not much. You guys want to, like, hang out? Teresa looks to Alicia, who shakes her head. Ugh, I have to babysit. (laughs) Okay. With that decided, Alicia turns to walk away, but Teresa doesn't move. Come on, my sister's going to be late for work. I think I'm just going to hang out. Are you for real right now? (laughs) Alicia stares, but Teresa stays quiet and won't look at her. Alicia shakes her head, exasperated. She turns away, and she leaves. What's up with her? She don't like Mexicans or something? No, she just had something to do. Someone hands Teresa a cigarette, so she takes it. Hey. The gang collectively ignores him, except for Teresa, who casts furtive glances his direction. Mike shrugs it off, pulls out a baggie full of pot. Teresa's eyes widen as he pulls out a bowl and a lighter. Now everyone's taking notice. Anthony stands up, grabs the baggie. He examines it, opens it, takes a sniff. Smells like good shit. Mike snatches the baggie back. Anthony, not used to the pushback, puffs up. Mike chuckles and shakes his head in disbelief. It's funny, asshole. Anthony takes a step toward Mike, but Hector gets in between them, pushing them both back. Guys, guys, come on. We don't fight over weed. We smoke it. (laughs) Exterior oil park later. Various shots of Mike rolling a joint, passing it around the circle. Teresa takes a hit and coughs. The kids laugh at her. She frowns and rises to the challenge, taking a long, hard. Holds in the smoke, and she turns and blows it out into Anthony's face. The other kids pat her on the back. She's one of them now. Later, younger kids fly kites in the park, and Teresa and her new crew run past, their arms outstretched, mimicking the kites. Together, they look like birds flying in formation. Suddenly, Teresa stops, remembering something important. Wait, what's today? Mike stops, too, but the rest don't notice, and they keep running. Seriously, what day is it? (laughs) No, not like the day of the week. What's the date? Teresa's attention is suddenly drawn to something in the sky. She grabs Mike's hand. They run through the park to the tops of the small hill directly in the center. Teresa is wide-eyed, smiling. Where are we going? Here. Mike looks around, confused. There's nothing here. He looks at her as if to say, WTF. He follows her gaze <laughs> he follows her gaze up toward the sky. Now he sees that the sky is filled with shooting stars. Streaks of white light shoot through the night sky. Mike's eyes are as wide as Teresa's grin. She lies on her back, he comes down next to her and he looks up. They silently watch the light show as their hands creep closer together as Mike's pinkies touches hers, and... They call them shooting stars, but they're not really stars, just interplanetary debris traveling at like a thousand miles per hour. (laughs) Mike rolls over on his side, watching her, and she knows it. He edges closer. She glances at him, but quickly returns to the night sky. But now, Mike is going in for the kiss. Hey, 
dummy. Mike jumps, moves away from Teresa, and Nikki stops a few feet away and looks up at Mike skeptically, knowing exactly what's up. Yaya's looking for you. Let's go. Teresa sighs heavily. Nikki pulls Teresa to her feet, and she turns to say goodbye to Mike, but he's already gone. Interior, Gacy's house, crawl space, night. The dim glow of a flashlight. A shovel scrapes against the dirt, lifting it out. And again, until strike, scrape. The shovel hits something hard. Greg is crouched on his hands and knees, a bandana over his mouth and nose. He struggles to reach a flashlight. Hey, Mr. Gacy, we might have a problem. His fingers brush the bottom of the flashlight, spinning it away and out of reach. Cursing, he lays down the shovel and backs out of the crawl space. Interior, Gacy's house, kitchen, night. The fluorescent bulb over the stove struggles to overcome the dark wood of the cabinets and the brown tile. Greg appears in the doorway and pulls the bandana down. I, I think I had a pipe. No sign of life? He steps through into the living room, silhouetted by the kitchen light behind him. Hello? He clicks on the light. Yellow and orange and brown striped wallpaper give a garish, cartoon-like quality to the room. It's sparsely furnished. Indents in the carpet indicate multiple missing pieces. Stray nails mark the walls over faded wallpaper where pictures once hung. Greg looks at the Greg looks at the ones that remain. Most are partly photos from backyard barbecues, a luau, themed costume parties. Greg shakes his head. Something about this guy. Greg stops at an image of Gacy and First Lady Rosalind Carter. Then he turns to a monstrous wooden TV console. An open card sits face down on top of it, and Greg turns it over. A Christmas card. A drawing of a fireplace on one end, and a photo of Gacy with a blonde woman and two little girls. The card reads, Merry Christmas, the Gacy's. <laughs> Suddenly, a clang from downstairs, and Greg turns his head. Interior, Gacy's house, crawl space. Greg descends back into the ominous, dark crawl space. Mr. Gacy? No answer. The oppressive darkness and silence is getting to him. Is he really all alone in this house? He picks up the flashlight and his heart skips a beat. What he thought was a pipe is actually a human skull. Greg freezes with fear, his panicked eyes searching the darkness. Instinctively, he reaches for the shovel, but it's gone. A scraping sound behind him, Greg whirls around and wham! Just as the flat of the shovel smashes into Greg's head, we hear the doorbell ring. Exterior Gacy's house front door, night. It's Bill on the doorstep, a box under one arm. He pushes the doorbell again. Interior crawl space. Greg shakes his head, trying desperately to clear the cobwebs. He lurches on his hands and knees toward the crawl space opening. Ding! The chime of the doorbell echoes and Greg looks up. Exterior front door, night. Bill waits. He cranes his head to look through the window, checks his watch, knocks on the door. Delivery! Interior crawl space night. Greg hears the muffled knocking upstairs and lunges for the opening for safety. He's almost made it. He's just about to crawl out when, wham, the shovel connects again and Greg crumbles. Exterior front door night. Bill hears a loud thud. Insistent, he knocks again. Interior crawl space night. Gacy, breathing heavy, snaps handcuffs onto Greg's wrists. He yanks his bandana off and viciously stuffs it into his mouth. Greg struggles fer ferociously, gagging and choking, trying desperately to buck Gacy off. Gacy clamps his hands over Greg's mouth and nose, holds him in a vice grip until the movements get weaker and weaker, and they stop. From above, the knocking is getting louder. Ding, ding, the doorbell ringing again and again. Exterior front door night. Bill frantically knocks on the door when suddenly... It opens. Gacy, dirty and sweating, fills the doorway. What, what's going on? Are you, are you trying to disturb the entire neighborhood? I heard, I heard a noise. Everything okay in there? Uh, a possum got under my house. I can't catch the damn thing. 
Interior hallway night. Before Gacy can object, Bill is inside. He sets down the box. Those, crit- get, those critters get into my basement, too. I have a foolproof method of catching them. Bill is almost halfway down the hallway. Interior crawl space night. Greg stirs at the sound of a second set of footsteps creaking across the floorboards. He lifts his head. He opens his eyes, and he blinks. He tries to call out for help, but he can't with the rag in his mouth. Interior hallway night. Gacy follows closely behind Bill. You got any lunch me? <laughs> Interior crawl space opening night. Bill stands near the hole. Easiest way to lure them out. Most pungent, the better. Interior crawlspace night. Greg sees the flashlight and kicks it, sending it skittering across the floor, hoping against all hope it will make enough noise to save him. Interior crawlspace opening night. Bill hears the noise, looks down into the hole. How big is it exactly? Interior kitchen night. Bill enters the kitchen and heads for the refrigerator. Gacy follows, watching him. Interior crawlspace night. Greg manages to get his knees under him and drags himself over to the opening of the crawlspace. It's close enough to touch, but with his hands cuffed behind his back, it may as well be a million miles away. With one loud, last, desperate burst, he kicks the wall with a loud thud. Interior kitchen night. At the noise, they both turn their heads. Bill looks like he's about to investigate, but Gacy grabs his arm and he stops him. The two men lock eyes. Gacy's hand wrapped tightly around Bill's arm. <laughs> that's, that's a tight grip you got there. <laughs> Gacy releases him. Bill rubs his arm and turns back to Gacy, reaching for the fridge door. Unseen by Bill, Gacy moves to the counter where a butcher knife rests. Pastrami works best. You got any? Bill puts his hand on the refrigerator door as Gacy wraps his fingers around the knife. The fridge is empty. Bill drops his hand from the refrigerator door and turns back to Gacy, who moves away from the knife. No food in the house. Living the life of a bachelor, right? That's me. Bill takes a step towards Gacy and puts a sympathetic hand on his shoulder. Let me run to the jewel, pick up some pastrami and beer. We'll run that fucker out of here in no time. Gacy walks Bill to the front door. Exterior Gacy's house night. Bill stands on the front porch with a smile on his face. Gacy stands in the doorway. You know what? I I got this. No need for your trouble. It's no trouble at all. Gacy shuts the door. The lock clicks into place. Interior crawlspace night. Gacy's shadow blocks the light as he climbs down into the crawlspace. Greg lies on the ground, his chest heaving up and down. A single tear streaks down his cheek, falling into the dirt. Gacy's hands grab his neck, and with the last of his strength, Greg tries to kick and buck him. Greg's unwillingness to go quietly only enrages Gacy. He tightens his grip, forcing the last bit of life from Greg. Greg begins to lose consciousness, stops struggling, his body becomes limp. Finally, Gacy releases him and pushes his lifeless body away in disgust. After a long beat... He picks up the shovel to finish the job Greg had started, which was, of course, digging his own grave. Interior last resort tavern night. Two old-timers are hunched over the bar, the short one idly tapping a burning cigarette into an overflowing ashtray as the tall one slowly tilts forward, his head resting on the bar. Sean wipes wipes down the bar, his hand stops at tall old-timer's head, and he suddenly jerks upright, looking around, his eyes wide. All right, last call. Is it? It is for you. Sean picks up the ashtray and empties it into the garbage bin. He lets out a deep sigh when he sees Kevin, a skittish, jittery man in his 40s who enters the bar, like a lamb stepping into the lion's den. Is Gus around? He is. Tall old-timer shoves money at Sean and stumbles toward the door, sensing trouble even in his comprised condition. Do you have your car keys? (laughs) Nope. Good man. As tall old-timer makes it back to the door, nearly bumping into Kevin, Sean goes back to wiping the bar. Can, Can I... Can I talk to him? You could, but I wouldn't. At that moment, Gus enters, shouldering a case of beer. He stops, he calmly puts the case down on the bar, and sits, pulls a bottle out, and pops the lid off, and he takes a drink. 
You want to hear something crazy? Sean glances at Kevin. There's this Jamuk. Owes me almost ten grand for weeks. I call him, he's not home. I go around the office, he's not there. He's like a ghost. Gus. I start to wonder, is it something I did? Is there something wrong with me? He thinks he can disappear without paying his debts? That he can do harm to my family like that? Sean keeps wiping down the bar. He makes eye contact with the short old-timer at the bar, the last remaining customer. Taking the hint, the short old-timer gets up and he hurries out. Gus takes another long drink. Finally, he stands, and with quiet menace, he approaches Kevin. Gus, listen, you got, you got to understand. Rage building as he closes the gap, Gus's fist wraps tightly around the bottle. He cocks his arm, ready to swing. Wait, wait, my, my, kid, my kid's sick. I, I got hospital bills. We all got bills. Where's my money? Just, just listen to me. I, I can fix it. I, I got a line. There's a horse. Gus grabs Kevin by the collar, jabs the mouth of the bottle into his ribs, my, my, and Kevin ki- cries out. My cousin's got a horse racing at Hawthorne next Saturday at 7. Gu- guaranteed to win. Don't bullshit the bullshitter. No such thing as guaranteed. Guaranteed. Whether or not it's true, Gus can see that Kevin believes it. You can take your guarantee. You put up your money. When you win, pay me. Gus. Gus releases him, shoves him backward. He turns his back and disappears into the rear of the bar. Interior, Ruzik Kitchen Night. Mrs. Ruzik, Greg's mother, makes a sandwich, pours a glass of milk, and sets it on the dining room table, as is her ritual for her son. As she leaves the room, we stay on the milk and sandwich. Interior, Ruzik Living Room Day. Pale morning light falls on Mrs. Ruzik, curled up on the, kitch- on the couch, asleep. She stirs awake and walks into the kitchen. She looks at the table. Milk and sandwich remained untouched. Interior, Vanna's office later. Sergeant Vanna sits behind a desk opposite Mrs. Ruzik. He pulls out his notepad, picks up a pen, and taps it on the desk. How old did you say your son is? 18. Uh, in June. And when did you last see him? Uh, I, I seen him yesterday, uh, yesterday morning before he left for work at the hardware store. He sighs and puts down his pen. Did you try calling some of his friends? Maybe he's got a new girlfriend, spent the night at her place? No, no, it's nothing like that. I'll be honest with you. I can take the report, but we generally can't do much with these until a person's been missing at least 48 hours. Unless there are obvious signs of foul play. And with your son's age, I... Mrs. Ruzek goes quiet, and then... You don't understand. My son, he's a good kid. Sometimes even good kids stay out all night. Exterior alley night. Teresa and her new crew roam the night. Hector hands Teresa a paper bag. She opens it, takes a sniff, and drops it. Hector laughs. He picks it up and hands it back to her. Take it. No way. This is so stupid. <laughs> you can go home. There's no way. There's one too many girls anyway. Come on. It'll be fun. Kimberly grabs the bag and hands it to Teresa. She, takes, she looks hesitantly to Anthony, who nods at her, so she takes it. Exterior, Oriole Avenue, night. The crew ambles down the street, jostling each other, throwing rocks at the street signs, sword fighting with sticks. As they turn the corner, realization dawns on Teresa's face. In the distance, a modest brick-tracked house. A young girl sits in a chair by the window. It's Alicia. Teresa stops. I can't. Come on, we're just playing. She didn't do anything to you. Yeah, so? Teresa tries to grab the bag from Hector, but he just laughs and tosses it to Anthony. Anthony, please. (laughs) Go home, then. Run along, good little girl. They continue to walk without her. She watches them go, then... Wait up! Exterior, Alicia's house tonight. 
Teresa hides behind a tree holding a paper bag. She turns back to the crew hiding behind a large bush. They make gestures, egging her on. She turns to Alicia's house, and Teresa walks to the front door and sets the bag down. She produces a lighter and tries to light it, but her hands are shaking. Anthony's suddenly standing next to Teresa. He lights the lighter. Click, click, and a spark runs through the bag and goes up in flames. Anthony rings the bell and he runs. Footsteps on the other side of the door. Teresa freezes. Run! She scrambles, running for her life, and reaches the bushes just as Alicia opens the door and sees the fire. She screams. Alicia's dad pushes past her and starts to stomp out the fire. He rattles off a string of expletives in Spanish. The gang howls with laughter. Alicia walks away toward the laughing bush, and the crew scurries away. Alicia sees Teresa bringing up the rear. Teresa glances back, and for the second, they lock eyes. Alicia's eyes well up. ¿Quién está ahí? Nadie. Exterior Oriole Park School Day. Weather's colder now. Puffy jackets and hats. At the edge of the school grounds, Teresa shares a cigarette with Kimberly and Don. The school bell rings and kids rush inside. Kimberly looks past Teresa and drops the cigarette and steps on it. Teresa turns away to find Mrs. K coming toward them. Interior Oriole Park School hallway later. Teresa stands off to the side and she kicks the floor with the tip of her toe. Gus talks and whispers to Mrs. K. Anything I can do, let me know. He shakes her hand. And Mrs. K walks back into her classroom as Gus walks over to Teresa. He stands in front of her with his arms crossed. Teresa stares down at the floor. Look at me. She looks away. He gently lifts her face with his, with his fingers. Kukla, what are you doing? You smoke. I'm a grown man. You're just a little girl. I'm not. He bends down and puts his hands on her shoulders. You are too smart to be smoking with a bunch of malakas. You're supposed to be the one I don't have to worry about. Gus lets the thought trail off, and then... I thought the same thing about you. That knocks the air right out of Gus. He tries to respond, but he can't. Finally, he looks her directly in the eye. You are a good girl. Teresa searches his eyes for a clue whether this is a question or an affirmation, but she doesn't get her answer. Gus drops her hand and stands. He smiles at his daughter, but the smile doesn't reach his eyes. As he turns to leave, Teresa takes a step back toward him. Bumpus? Gus stops at the door, looks at her quizzically. Teresa wants to say, I'm sorry, and don't go, and I love you, and I'm scared. But she can't compute at all, can't find the words, so she says... See you later. Gus steps out of the door into the sun, and now we, now we see how haggard and unhealthy he really looks. And Teresa, she sees it too. Interior hardware store day. Bill and Anthony restock the shelves with Bill on a ladder and Anthony handing boxes to him. The entry bell rings, and they both head... They both heads turn to see Sergeant Vanna entering. Bill gets down off the ladder. Officer? Can I have a word with you? Vanna looks at Anthony, who gets his drift. I'll go grab some more boxes. Anthony disappears into the rear of the store. Vanna reaches into his jacket to get his notepad and reveals his holstered forearm. His holstered <laughs> firearm. Sorry. Bill jokingly puts up his hands. You, you don't shoot people over late parking tickets, do you? Well, it depends. Late. <laughs> Interior hardware store office day. Anthony listens to Vanna and Bill's muffled voices as he enters the office and approaches Bill's desk. He reaches for the drawer and the voices stop. He freezes, listening. When the voices start up again, he quickly pulls open the drawer and rummages around inside. He pulls out an envelope filled with cash. He takes a stack of 20s and shoves them into his pocket. He puts the envelope back, and now he listens. Interior hardware store day. Vanna and Bill are still discussing Greg's disappearance. You talked to his other boss? Gacy? Yeah, been trying to reach him. He's uh, on the list. Gacy comes in here all the time. I'll let you know the next time I see him. Interior hardware store office day. Anthony reaches deep into the back of the drawer and pulls out the envelope Bill was looking through earlier. He opens it and pulls out a picture, and his expression 
darkens. Interior hardware store day. Bill, remembering. Anthony used to work for Gacy. I don't know how it all shook out. Well, obviously he works here now. He can tell you more. If, if we can find him. That's all right. If I interrogate the whole neighborhood every time a kid goes comes home late, uh, it's probably nothing. Interior hardware store office day. In the background, we hear a bell signaling Vanna's exit. Anthony, snorting, sorting through Bill's photos in disgust, doesn't hear it, and then... Get out! Startled, Anthony drops the photos and they scatter. Now we see what's on them. Candid snapshots of Bill with another man in intimate, private moments. Anthony slowly backs toward the door as Bill kneels on the floor, starting to collect the photos. Out! Now! Don't come back! Anthony turns and is gone in a flash. Interior Teresa's house day. Yaya sits on the couch in her coat and headscarf, working on a string of kambololi, worry beads. Her suitcase rests on the floor beside her. Teresa enters and sees that Yaya is packed. She sits and puts her head in Yaya's lap. Do you have to go? Yaya puts her head tenderly... Yaya pats her head tenderly as Gus enters. Yes, she does. Inoyata. Teresa doesn't move. Gus taps her back impatiently. Teresa, get up. She'll be back. When? It's a visa. It takes how long it takes. Teresa doesn't budge. Gus puts his hand on her back. I'll make you pancakes for breakfast, even warm up the syrup. Put the butter on the counter so it melts like you like it. Teresa squeezes Yaya tighter, and Gus's face falls. He shakes his head and picks up Yaya's suitcase. Pame! Yaya pats Teresa's head and gently untangles herself. Be a big girl, Kukla. Teresa finally sits up and lets Yaya stand. Once on her feet, Yaya takes Teresa's hand and presses her beads into her palm. In Greek, Protect these, and they will protect you. Teresa nods as Yaya takes her in her arms and she squeezes. Gus heads for the door. Enough with the Greek goodbyes. The car's running. Yaya smiles and she shakes her head. Exterior Teresa's house day. Gus closes the passenger door and walks around the front of the car to the driver's side door. He opens it and looks back toward the house. Teresa stands in the doorway, watching. As her eyes meet Gus's, she turns her back on him and closes the door. Interior Gus's car, dusk. Through the rear windshield, we see Midway Airport fading into the distance. He fiddles with the radio as he drives and tries to find a station without static. He looks up just in time to see that the light is red. He slams on the brakes and the car shudders to a stop. Outside the window is Hawthorne Racecourse. He looks at it, his mind churning. The light turns to green, and the car behind him honks. He curses under his breath, then... Exterior racetrack parking lot, dusk. Gus's car turns right into the parking lot. Interior racetrack, dusk. Gus approaches the counter, and he pulls out a roll of cash, peeling off several hundred-dollar bills. My gypsy girl in the fourth. He hesitates... Looks like he might be having second thoughts. Instead, he pulls off two more bills and adds them to the pile. To win. Interior racetrack bar night. The sky outside is dark now. On the bar, there's a line of dead soldiers, empty beer bottles, and shot glasses. Gus pulls out his racing form and smooths it on the bar. And in seventh and final position, my gypsy girl. And they're off. The camera stays tight on Gus's sweaty face, his eyes glassy. My gypsy girl has an early lead with Ronnie the Raging Cajun trailing in second far behind. As the horses take the second turn, Ronnie the Raging Cajun still trails behind, barely able to keep close to the gap. In the third turn, it's my gypsy girl. Gus starts to scream and shout, egging on my gypsy girl. Come on, girl, come on, girl. But wait, Ronnie the Raging Cajun is digging deep. He's coming up and outside the lane. My gypsy girl and Ronnie Raging Cajun are neck and neck. No! A roar from outside. Gus waits breathlessly until... And it's Ronnie the Raging Cajun by a nose. Gus reels and drops his head. He turns to the bartender to order another drink when he sees Nikki. Gus pushes away his hand from the bar, seeing his son Nikki palm something into a woman's hand. She drops a wad of cash into his pocket. 
Nikki turns and sees Gus charging toward him like a bull. Interior restroom night. Gus enters, dragging Nikki behind him. This is what you meant by contacts all over the city? You're a scumbag dealer now? He throws Nikki against the wall. Nikki tries to push him off. What but the hell, old man? Tell me I didn't see what I saw. I just deliver it and pick up the cash. That's all. Nikki takes out the cash and starts to count it. Gus swats it out of his hand, sending the money everywhere. Nikki drops to the ground and scrambles to pick up the money. Jesus Christ, you're too stupid to know just how stupid you are. Nikki stuffs the cash into his pockets and throws open the door. Interior racetrack bar, night, to find a police officer handcuffing his buyer. Hold it. Nikki panics and tries to run, but he doesn't see a second officer who grabs him. Exterior racetrack parking lot night. As the police escort Nikki in cuffs, his head hung low, his dad following full of anger, one of their lowest moments. We hear the needle drop on a record player and a bunch of teenagers laughing in stark contrast to what we're seeing. As the opening beats of London Calling begin, we cut to interior Don's basement night. Teresa and her friends whirl around in a flurry of exuberant energy as the music blasts from the speakers. All the girls have had makeovers. Big hair, dark eyeliner, too much eyeshadow, bright lipstick. Don stops dancing and throws an open padlock on top of the built-in bar and pulls Bob from the liquor store cabinet from the liquor cabinet Teresa grabs one of the bottles opens it and takes a long gulping swig as Don and Kimberly double over in hysterics Teresa finishes wipes her mouth grins throws herself back into a twirling exhilarated dance interior moose lodge same various shots from a ceremony in honor of John Wayne Gacy under a banner that reads Knights of Columbus annual civic awards night a group of men laugh and drink Gacy is dead center the life of the party cameras flash Gacy smiles wide for the photos in front of a velvet curtain, handing a tr- holding a trophy. Another flash that match cuts with. Exterior racetrack parking lot, same. The flashing lights of a squad car. Gus, drunk and belligerent, follows the officers as they shove Nikki in the car. What are you doing? Do you know who I am? It's Coke, Gus. Pissant. How much is this going to cost me? Gus takes out his wallet and the officer puts a hand on his arm. Now, I'm going to have to stop you right there before you put yourself in the car with him. Gus angrily slaps away the officer's hand. Get your hands off of me. Go home, Gus. Call your lawyer. As the officer turns, Gus locks eyes with Nikki, who's suddenly just a terrified kid in the backseat of a cop car. Nikki looks away. We hold on Gus's devastated face bathed in red flashing lights that slowly give way to darkness. As the dust settles behind the departing police car, Gus sees Kevin. He's moving fast, doesn't see Gus. Gus's expression darkens. Time slows. All ambient sound disappears and gives way to the pounding rhythm of the music as Gus takes out his anger on Kevin. Gus lurches forward, grabs Kevin's shoulder, wrenches him hard and backwards, and Kevin reels back, falling hard to the ground. Wham! Gus is on top of him, punching him square in the nose. Blood gushes. In the distance, the police car's taillights flash bright and red, and the car spins around, headlights turning Gus and Kevin's thrashing bodies into silhouettes. Kevin tries to break free as Gus's bloodied knuckles smash into his cheek. Kevin's fist tightens around his car key. He lashes out and gouges Gus's cheek. Gus lets go, stumbles back, puts his head to his cheek, bleeding. Kevin's chest heaves, his neck red with Gus's blood. The police car stops, the doors open, the two officers scramble out as Gus gets to his feet and roars with rage. He lunges at Kevin, but an officer grabs him, shoves him hard to the ground, and cuffs his hands behind his back. Suddenly, Gus is on the ground, face down, an officer pinning his arms behind his back, and Kevin kicks him. Gus hears Nikki's horrified shouts, sees a tear-stained face from the back window of the police cruiser, and Kevin's boot catches Gus's jaw. Darkness. Exterior, Moose Lodge night. Gacy's red-faced from celebrating as he walks to his car. He unlocks the door and he glances up, seeing something he likes. A hot young hunk exiting from the bar across the street. 
A hungry look passes over Gacy's face as he drops into the driver's seat. After a moment, the car's engine starts up. The hot young hunk heads down the street, and Gacy follows. Interior of Vanna's car night. Vanna's on his way home, looking, for wor- looking worse for the wear. As he passes the intersection with Somerdale, he loosens his tie and he glances up at the sign for Oriel Avenue. Exterior of Vanna's car night. Vanna's car glides past the intersection. Suddenly, it stops. It reverses and turns down Somerdale. Exterior of Gacy's house night. Gacy's car sloppily turns into the driveway at an angle. The front tire's on the lawn, and he puts it in park. Interior of Gacy's car night. Gacy turns the engine off and starts to get out, but notices something on his hands that gives him pause. Blood under his fingernails. The tips of several fingers streaked with red. A scratch on his forearm, his forearm oozes. He sighs with self-disgust and regret, then opens the car door to get out as headlights blast him in the face. Exterior of Gacy's house night. Gacy squints, takes an unsteady step forward, and the headlights turn off. Vanna steps out of his car. Something I can help you with? He flashes his badge. You're John Gacy, right? Gacy takes a step toward the house into the shadows. Look, I only had a couple beers. I'm just trying to get inside. Don't worry. I just need to ask you a question about one of your employees, uh, Greg Rusick. Vanna watches Gacy's eyes, but they give nothing away. Gacy casually puts his hands in his pockets. What about him? His mother hasn't seen him for a few days, and she's getting worried. Guy at the hardware store pointing me in your direction. Why would I know where he is? So you haven't seen him since when? Three, four days. Vanna nods, buying it. He looks like he might leave, but then... You know, the guy mentioned that you're in the store a lot looking for new workers. You have a lot of turnover? These kids, they, they come and go as they please. There's no work ethic anymore. Hmm. One day they're here, the next day they're ghosts, right? Vanna looks around. He knows he needs to get into this house to check things out. He bounces on his toes. I've been drinking coffee and riding around all night. I really need to use a john. Could I? Gacy looks at the front door. Yeah, I guess. Gacy begins to walk to the front door. Thanks, I'll only take a minute. Vanna's radio crackles to life. Hey, Sarge, you there? Vanna goes into the car, leans in, and picks up the receiver. Go ahead. Squad car at Hawthorne just called in. There's been an altercation. It's Gus and his kid. Vanna closes his eyes, rubs his forehead. Sarge? Yeah, I'm here. Vanna goes back to Gacy, still standing on the lawn. Do you have a business card? Gacy suspiciously keeps his hands in his pockets. You know what? I'm all out. Vanna eyes him, knowing something's off. Well, if Greg shows up, um, let him know people are looking for him. Gacy nods, breathing heavy. Can't wait to get inside. Interior, Gacy's bathroom, night. He hurriedly washes the blood off of his hands in the sink. Looking at himself in the mirror, his expression darkens. He dries his hand on the towel and turns to head back outside. We stay on the blood circling the drain as we hear his car engine start and his car pulls out of the driveway. Interior, Don's basement, night. The needle hisses and pops as the arm bounces on the end of the record. The liquor bottles are a lot less full now. Teresa, Don, and Kimberly are sprawled on a couch, chatting and laughing. Anthony, Hector, and Mike wander in. Teresa stumbles to her feet and runs to Anthony with a smile. (laughs) What happened to your face? Teresa's expression darkens. She turns back to the couch. Anthony grabs her hand and pulls her back to him. Yo, I'm not saying I don't like it. I just like you better the other way. That's all. Someone drops on another record on the turntable, and Teresa and Anthony start to slow dance. At first, there's some space between their bodies, but Anthony slowly pulls Teresa closer. Mike watches from the corner. Let's go upstairs. Uh, Let's just stay down here. Teresa tries to pull away, but Anthony has a firm hold on her. Anthony presses his crotch against her and kisses her neck. Come on, you can trust me. We don't do anything you don't want to do. I want to dance. Teresa's way out of her depth. She pulls back, but Anthony holds tight to her wrist. He starts to lead her to the stairs. Mike can see that she's scared. Hey, 
wants to smoke a bowl. Hells yeah. Yeah, sure. Anthony holds onto her for a moment, but reluctantly lets go. Interior basement stairs night. Teresa sits on the stairs, swaying back and forth. Her head lolls to one side as Mike sits next to her. You okay? Yeah. Anthony is in the corner with Kimberly. They whisper, they giggle. He leans in and he kisses her. Maybe we should get out of here. But Teresa only sees Anthony. She stumbles up over to Anthony and Kimberly and Mike follows her. He's with me. Hey. Anthony smirks, loving every minute. Teresa grabs Kimberly's arm and Kimberly shakes her off, turns on her, menacing. Why are you still here? No one wants you around. Anthony laughs. Mike tries to take Teresa's hand and get her out of this, but she shakes him off. She tries to grab Anthony's hand, but he gives her a nudge that's a little too close to a shove for comfort. That's enough for Mike, who shoves Anthony into the wall. Anthony recovers quickly and lunges toward Mike, knocking him into Teresa and Teresa onto the floor. Everyone stops. Teresa looks at both of them, stung. She gets up and she walks away, and Mike follows. You can have the skank. Mike catches up with Teresa, puts his arm on her arm, but she turns on him with venom in her eyes. Why are you still here? No one wants you around. Crushed, but determined not to show it. Mike just nods. He climbs the stairs and disappears. Exterior Don's house. Mike steps out of his house. Moments later, Hector pushes past him at full run. Beer run! Don bursts out after him, and Mike watches them run down the street toward the bright lights of the business district. Exterior liquor store night. Hector and Don are bathed in the neon glow of a bud sign. Both are out of breath from running, and Hector turns to Don. Last one in has to carry the beer. Hector grabs the handle, but Don's body checks him into the door. He bounces off and winces. Don casually enters. Ladies first. You ain't no lady. Lady. Interior liquor store at night. The long-haired clerk doesn't look up from his guitar magazine as the duo nonchalantly browses the store. Hector circles a beer display, and Don peruses the non-alcoholic beverages. She grabs several glass bottles of Coke and heads to the counter, barely keeping hold of them. Hector watches her closely. The clerk puts down his magazine as Don fumbles with the bottles, attempting to get into the counter, but smash! A bottle accidentally slips and explodes in a shower of glass and carbonation. Don jumps back to avoid the mess as the rest of the bottles crash to the floor. The clerk curses, making his way around the corner. Hector, seizing the moment, grabs a case of beer and heads for the door, while the clerk cleans up and Don apologizes. Exterior liquor store at night. Hector runs out, smiling, home free, but turns right into a man standing in the shadows. He flashes a police bag. You're coming with me, son. Hector fakes left, tries to run, but the man grabs his arm. The beer drops to the ground and the cans tumble out. The man yanks Hector's arm, causing him to cry out as a handcuff closes around his wrist. Before he knows what's happening, the man has the other wrist and completes the job. Terrified, Hector looks into the face of John Wayne Gacy. He shoves Hector roughly into the back seat and slams the door shut. Then he quickly gets into the front and the car pulls away. Moments later, Dawn, who's done apologizing, comes out and stops, worried when she sees the beer scattered on the ground. Hector? Interior Don's basement night. Teresa watches Kimberly and Anthony slow dance. She tenderly steps toward a room made of hanging sheets that can cordon it off from the rest of the basement. Teresa pushes through the sheets to see a twin bed, a beanbag chair, and some kiss posters hung on a concrete wall. It's more of a bunker than a bedroom, but it's a welcome sanctuary for Teresa. She walks over and sits on the bed. She looks back through a gap in the curtains at Anthony and Kimberly, now kissing. She falls back onto the bed and closes her eyes. Suddenly, Don's cries stab the air. Teresa's eyes snap open, and she sits up to see Don, hysterical, frantically pleading with Anthony. Hector's gone. Don't know what happened. I went outside, and he was gone. Wait, whoa, whoa, slow down. What the fuck? Where? Outside the store. Don, Anthony, and Kimberly move toward the All stairs. All right, let's go. Where are we going? <laughs> but they're already sprinting up the stairs. Exterior Don's house night. Teresa emerges from the house, confused to find Don, Anthony, and Kimberly disappearing toward the liquor store. Teresa fo- considers following, but instead she turns away. Interior, Teresa's house, night. 
Teresa opens the front door. She stops, listens. Hello? The house is still, silent. She creeps inside and finds the kitchen empty. She slowly moves up the stairs, nervous. Interior upstairs hallway, night. She steps softly down the hallway and glances into Nikki's bedroom. Empty. She reaches the end of the hallway and she looks into, Guy's, into Gus's bedroom. Also empty. And the bed has not been slept in. Interior police station night. Vanna enters to find Gus, bloody and battered, being shoved through the door. Nikki in handcuffs behind him. Jesus. Another officer stops Vanna as he enters. Sorry, Sarge. This lady's been waiting. Mrs. Ruzek sits among petty criminals and vagrants. She looks tired and strung out. Vanna lets out a long breath. Don't do anything with the kid until I talk to you, okay? You got it, boss. Vanna approaches Mrs. Ruzek and takes a seat next to her. He searches for the right words, and then... I know you're anxious. You told me 24 hours. It's been over a week. I know, and I've been, I've been looking around, asking questions. She smiles sympathetically, but it never reaches her eyes. She wipes a tear. Vanna takes her hand. He doesn't speak, but his eyes tell her what she already knows. I'm doing everything I can. Mrs. Ruzek forces a smile and nods. She pulls out a picture and shows it to Vanna. Such a good baby. Never caused me any trouble. You know that? Slept through the night. Not even a peep. Do you you got any kids? Vanna shakes his head. She smiles again. Finally, she stands up and pats Vanna on the shoulder. Vanna watches with a pained expression as as she slowly makes her way out of the police station. He leans his head back against the wall and looks up towards the heavens for answers. Interior, Sean's apartment, night. Sean's apartment above the tavern. An Irish flag serves as the only curtain. A couch clearly rescued from a dumpster sits in front of a TV with tinfoil rolled with antennas. Someone pounds on the door. Sean shambles toward the door in a wife beater and track pants. He has a Celtic knot tattooed on his shoulder. He unlocks several locks and flings the door open to find... Teresa, shaken and somewhat hysterical, her mascara running down her face. She pushes her way in, panicking. Where's my dad? At home, sleeping it off. No, I went home, he wasn't there, and Nikki Alarm bells are going off in Sean's head, but he tries not to show it. She turns to him, the smeared makeup and running mascara makes Teresa look like a garish caricature. Jesus, what happened to you? You look like a deranged clown. Gets a whiff of her breath. Aren't you pissed, too? Brilliant. He heads to the bathroom. Let's get you cleaned up, then we'll go look for your dad. She doesn't move. Come on now. Teresa starts toward the bathroom unsteadily, then her eyes widen as she pushes past Sean and runs down the hallway. We hear her heaving into the toilet. Lift the lid. (laughs) The phone rings and Sean grabs it, irritated. Yeah. His face changes. What? Interior living room night. Teresa is embedded in the couch, moaning softly. Sean enters with a cup of tea and his demeanor is changed. Nervous energy courses through him, but he tries to hold himself together until he can get Teresa handled. Uh, Just drink this. Sean watches her impatiently as she sips the tea. He lights a cigarette. I'd expect your Egypt brother to act like this, but not you. Fuck him. Fuck you. Just fuck everyone. I don't give a fuck. Wow, someone's (laughs) learned a new word. (laughs) Teresa stands, sways a bit, still drunk and still high. She steadies herself and starts for the door, and Sean blocks her. Wait a minute. Get out of my way. Come back and sit. Let me go. She She starts to punch and slap at him, gaining in fury before finally dissolving into tears. Sean sighs heavily and puts an arm around her. She leans into his strong chest and sobs. Sean hands her a discarded shirt, and Teresa wipes her eyes with it, frowning. Is this clean? Doubtful. <laughs> Teresa looks up at him. He smiles down at her. She misreads the situation and awkwardly leans in to kiss him. Don't do that. Why? Why? What's wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you. You're just a kid. I am not. This time she really goes for it, reaches for his face and puts a hand on his back of his head and tries to kiss him again. With a bit more force, he blocks her advance. Yes, you are. As you should be. 
be a kid as long as you can because growing up is right shite. He looks her in the eye. You look at me as a good man pretending to be a bad one, but it's the other way around. That's not true. It is. And you need to learn the difference or your life will be in endless misery. But you're all I've got. <laughs> well, you're truly buggered. <laughs> Sean sighs heavily and slumps into the couch. He digs in his pocket for a wad of cash and he hands her a couple of bills. <clears throat> look, you need to sober up. Be love. Go to the diner and get us some food, will you? Then we'll go back and look for your dad. Teresa reluctantly takes the money and heads toward the door. She looks back, sensing that something is amiss. Sean gives her a wan smile, and she exits. Interior hospital, ER exam room, night. Gus, bloody and alone, sits on a gurney in an exam room. The paper crinkles beneath him as he shifts uncomfortably waiting. The curtain rips back, and as Gus turns, expecting to meet the doctor, but instead he sees Vanna. Were you not listening when I told you to get your shit together? Were you not listening when I told you to fuck off? Where's that nurse? She's supposed to bring me something to take the edge off. Vanna moves in in front of Gus, and clearly he's upset. Don't you think about your kids? They don't deserve this shit. You can stop being her knight in shining fucking armor. Vanna stops, takes a step back. What? I get it. You had a thing for her. I got in your way, and you never let it go. But it's over. You can let it go now. To Gus's surprise, Vanna laughs. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. You've been carrying that bullshit in your head all these years. Bullshit. Where's your wife? Where's your kids? Vanna takes a step toward the bed and stops. He looks around the room and finds a chair. He sits and he sighs heavily. I knew Maria since we were kids. Did you know that? Of course you didn't. When we went to the dance that night, I, uh, I knew what I was getting into. I could have been the most handsome, the smartest, the best man in the room, but I can never be the one thing her parents wanted me to be. Greek. It was more than that. Yeah, I know. You're right. Here we are. Time to let it go and face reality. Right now, your son is sitting in lockup. Your daughter is running the streets. She's a good Even girls make mistakes. You should know better than anyone. Gus bristles. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, you did. Gus pats his shirt pocket and pulls out a cigarette. He lights it, but before he can take a drag, Vanna pulls it out of his mouth and stubs it out. You can't smoke in here. Vanna moves around the gurney and steps toward the curtain. I'll go find you a doctor. He pulls the curtain back. At the end, when she was off her head on morphine, she'd call your name. Vanna's body tenses up. She thought I was you. Vanna closes the curtain behind him and walks away. Exterior, big top diner, night. Teresa sees her reflection in the window. She wipes her eyes and tries to remove the lipstick with the back of her sleeve. She sees Mike sitting in the booth alone. Another teen approaches the exit and pushes through. Teresa steps back to let the teen exit and doesn't see that Mike shoves a bag of weed into his pocket. Teresa enters and glances nervously toward Mike as she approaches the counter. She takes a seat at the counter. Interior Big Top Diner Night. A familiar waitress, from page one, drops menus, water, and a bread basket on the counter. Teresa waves away the bread. I just need to get a couple things to go. Sure thing, T. The waitress takes the bread and Teresa glances past her to the kitchen window. Alicia's dad diligently works the grill. He places food on a plate and sets it in the window. Their eyes connect for a second and Teresa, guilty, looks away. Mike takes the stool next to her and picks up a menu, pretending to look through it. Teresa does the same, and finally... I'm sorry. Can I get some bread? <laughs> the, mi- the waitress sighs, gives him the basket she just took from Teresa, and Mike nods his thanks. Teresa tentatively picks up a piece of bread and bites into it. Didn't you just send it back? Can I ask you a question? Why do you keep hanging out with those guys? I don't know. Why do you? I don't. I hang out with you. Before Teresa can process that, the waitress returns. Can I get a banana split? Two spoons? 
Mike looks at Teresa, who nods. The waitress turns to go. Wait, can I have... Already got it. Mama Maria's chicken soup. Teresa flinches when she hears Maria. Actually, I just need a couple of burgers and a bag to go. Oh, shit, sweetie. I'm so sorry. The flustered waitress nods and leaves. A banana split? What are you, like five? (laughs) When things would get really messed up at home, my mom would take me out for a banana split. Bet you feel shitty now. (laughs) (laughs) Bell's jingle as the door opens behind him. Alicia's dad smiles and waves. Teresa and Mike turn to see Alicia entering. When she sees Teresa, she stops in her tracks. Her eyes are dead, and her voice is low and full of disdain. You look like shit. Stepping forward and sniffing. Smell like shit, too. How long have you been wearing those clothes? Teresa shakes her head, moves away toward the door. Whatever, I don't need this. Bye, go back to your burnouts. Maybe I'll visit you in jail. Puta. (laughs) Takes one to know one. Better than a pregnant high school dropout like your sister. Wait, that was your mom, too, right? Alicia storms toward Teresa and slaps her across the face. Teresa silently chokes back tears. Mike puts his arms around Teresa and leads her away as Alicia yells after them. If you see me, look the other way. You don't know me, I don't know you. Exterior big top diner at night. Alicia's dad opens the kitchen door to see what the commotion is, but only finds his daughter staring start staring at the front door with tears in her eyes as the door swings shut. Interior Sean's apartment at night. Sean is a live wire, adrenaline slamming through his body. Ledgers litter the floor, most of them with pages torn out. Blackened ashes fill the sink. Papers filled with names and numbers clog the toilet, and Sean takes his hand and swirls them around as they disintegrate into the water. He shoves the empty ledger into a garbage bag and ties it off. He leans against the counter, and his hands shake as he tries to pour a drink, but he gives up, drinks straight from the bottle, and he grabs a duffel bag filled with cash. Zip! Exterior of Sean's apartment at night. Sean rushes down the sidewalk, a cigarette in his mouth, slinging the duffel bag over his shoulder. He opens his car door and shoves the bag inside. Then he feels headlights on him, and he ducks down out of sight as, interior, Gacy's car at night. John Wayne Gacy glances at the top of Sean's head as he slides past. In the rearview mirror, Gacy watches Sean's silhouette get into his car and drive off. Interior gas station later. Muzak, elevator music, plays softly over the PA. Fluorescent lights buzz overhead, their light bleeding through the front window into the night. The only walking soul is a teenage the only waking soul is a teenaged clerk behind the counter flipping through a dirty magazine. He glances up and Gacy's par- car pulls into the lot and stops at a gas pump. Exterior gas station night. Gacy steps out of the car as the music continues to play, seeming louder out here in an otherwise silent night. <clears throat> Interior gas station night. The clerk looks up from his reading as Gacy enters and steps up to the counter, fishing his wallet out of his pocket. Uh, give me a 10 on pump 3. As Gacy hands the clerk a $10 bill, he glances down at the magazine and back up to the clerk who makes no move to cover up what he's been looking at. Gacy looks at the boy for a long moment, considering. Exterior gas station night. Gacy leans against his car, pumping gas, and the clerk is nowhere to be seen. The numbers click, click, click on the pump display as Gacy watches dispassionately. With a final thump, the pump shuts off, and Gacy pulls the novel out, turning to hang it up. And now we can see the clerk, alive and well, refilling the beverage coolers. The elevator music plays between songs, and in the brief moment of silence, we hear something that sounds like the muffled cries of a dying animal. Gacy frowns and hangs up the nozzle. He screws the gas cap back on, and there's the sound again, louder this time. He moves to the trunk and opens it carefully, the shadows inside the trunk receding to reveal Hector. His battered, bruised body half-covered by a hastily arranged tarp. His eyelids flutter, showing only white. His pupils rolled back in his head, and a rattling breath shudders through his crushed windpipe, turning into a low, animalistic moan. Gacy glances inside, and the clerk has returned to his nudie magazine, completely oblivious. Gacy leans over Hector and glances 
clamps a hand around its throat. Gacy's fingers dig into Hector's neck. Veins bulge on Gacy's forehead. Sweat beads drip down his nose as he closes his vice and squeezes Hector's life out. Hector's body jerks like a chicken after the axe has fallen, displacing the tarp and revealing Hector's naked torso. Finally, the spark is extinguished and Hector goes limp. Gacy pulls back, exhausted, wipes the sweat from his brow and pulls the tarp over Hector's head, slamming the trunk shut. Interior gas station night. The clerk glances up from his reading material as Gacy's car disappears into the night. Interior Mike's living room later. Unopened boxes surround a couch, a coffee table, and a TV on the floor. We see a woman's high heels clicking as she walks. Teresa and Mike open the door to find Mike's mom is on her way out. Teresa suddenly stops, and Mike's mom is the pretty woman with the short skirt who is kissing Sean. Yep, that's Mike's mom. She sees a look on Teresa's face and smirks. You kids don't stay up too late. And she's out the door. Love you too. To Teresa. Sorry, she's never home. Teresa's fingers find Mike's, and she squeezes. Come on. He turns and leads her down an empty hallway. They pass a bedroom with a mattress on the floor, an ashtray filled with cigarette butts marked with a hot pink lipstick. Interior, Mike's bedroom, night. This room is also unpacked, even though Mike is completely moved in. The walls are painted black, covered with, the rock po- covered with rock posters like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Aerosmith. Teresa plops down in a beanbag chair, and Mike opens the closet door, rustling around a bit. He pulls out a shoebox and a bong. Does she always go out this late? Yeah, pretty much. That must suck. Mm. Not really. Mike packs the bong, lights it, and takes a hit. He hands it to Teresa. She inspects it and clearly has no idea what to do. <laughs> you suck up the bowl. You suck up the smoke. When you're done, pull the bowl up, hold it, then exhale. She takes a hit and it bubbles. She immediately starts to cough. She drops it and spills <laughs> bong water all over. Oh, shit. Mike jumps up and grabs a towel to sop up the bong water. <laughs> no offense, but you make a shitty stoner. Are you going to get in trouble? From who? Teresa scoots onto the floor, lays her head on Mike's lap. Startled, he holds up his hands, not sure what to do. She closes her eyes. Tentatively, Mike runs his fingers through her hair. I wish she'd give me my mom. At night, she'd hold me and sing these silly songs in Greek until I'd fall asleep. She was a good one. She sees Mike's face. Oh, God, I'm sorry. But Mike shakes his head and smiles reassuringly. He traces the line of Teresa's jaw with his fingers. She smiles sleepily and turns to look up at the ceiling, and after a yawn... You think I found Hector? Found him where? He waits for her to answer. Nothing. He turns to see her face, but she's already asleep. Exterior, Dust Plains River, night. Moonlight ripples across the water as it breaks over pebbles and stray branches reaching out from the muddy banks. The reflection of the moon is blocked as something hurtles toward the water from above, growing larger and larger until... A black rolled tarp plunges into the water. Bubbles roil around the edges as the tarp is swallowed up, pulled down into the darkness below. Interior, Mike's bedroom, dawn. Teresa wakes with a start, sucks in a massive breath, terror in her eyes. She sits bolt upright. Mike rubs his eyes and looks around groggily. Fuck, I forgot Sean. What? Sean, I was supposed to bring him food and find my dad. Lay down. You're still dreaming. Teresa gets up and bolts out of the room. Wait. Shit. He's too late to catch her, and she's out the door. Interior, Sean's apartment, Don. The door is ajar. Teresa approaches cautiously, knocks, and the door swings open. She finds it empty. She's shocked to see every drawer is left open. Sean? Her voice is greeted by silence. Exterior, Gacy's house day. The late fall block party is in full swing on Summerdale in front of Gacy's house. Swimming against the sea of kids and ignoring their parents, we see a stone-faced Mrs. Ruzik. Where most people on the street see a party, Mrs. Ruzik sees obstacles preventing her from getting to one thing. John Wayne Gacy's front door. Interior, Gacy's house day. The sound of the doorbell plays through the house. Exterior, Gacy's house day. No answer. Mrs. Ruzik peers through the windows. No movement. She sees 
She, the sheer curtains make it nearly impossible to see anything. Mrs. Ruzak pounds on the door, forcing herself up into a fit of desperation and frustration, and s- but silence. She goes to the window again, and this time, movement, a shadow. Suddenly, the door opens, and Gacy fills the doorway, a towel around his neck, wiping his face. A momentary flicker of impatience on his face before he pastes his most welcoming smile. Can I help you, miss? You know damn well who I am. My son was working for you every night for two weeks. Gacy, on his heels, quickly assumes the facade of the concerned neighbor. Whoa, whoa, slow down. Why why, why don't you come inside? Where is my son? I'm sorry, but I employ a lot of young... Greg, my son was... is Greg. And this, this was the last place that I could say for certain that he was. Greg... I haven't seen Greg since he... Gacy sighs heavily. Looks like he's carrying a heavy burden. He's not sure he should share. Look, I I don't know if I should tell you this. He, he, he told me that he was saving up to leave town. I gave him this paycheck, and that's the last I saw him. Liar. You're a liar. He'd never leave without telling me. Gacy's face fights to hold on to a convincing look of concern. Losses. You know what, lady? Maybe you should call the police. And you can even tell them that John Wayne Gacy sent you. He slams the door in her face. Exterior cemetery day. Teresa's bike lays on its side, of, lays on its side on the sidewalk outside the wrought iron gates. The cemetery is quiet, empty. Teresa sits huddled in front of the headstone that reads, "Maria Deliopoulos, beloved wife and mother, 1939 through 1978." The headstone is new, bare, while the headstone next to it is adorned with a vase filled with white roses. Teresa looks around and, seeing no one, she steps to the grave and takes several of the roses and places them on her mother's grave as a tear streaks down her cheek. Then the dam breaks and tears stream down her face. She she tears apart the flowers and angrily tosses them aside. A man's feet step into frame. Teresa freezes and looks up. Bill stares down at her and he points to the other grave. You know it's bad luck to disturb the dead. Teresa wipes her face with the back of her hand. Can't get any worse. Look around. It can always get worse. Teresa snorts. Whatever it is, it'll get better. It may get worse first, because life is fickle like that. But it'll get better. He reaches out his hand to help her up. He brushes the, the leaves and dirt off of her, hands her a handkerchief, and Teresa blows her nose, wipes her eyes, and she tries to hand it back to him. Keep it as a souvenir. You hungry? Teresa shrugs. Bill reaches into a paper bag and pulls out two sandwiches. I've got liverwurst and mayo or ham and mustard. He, he holds the liverwurst out and Teresa makes a face. Ham it is. He hands her the sandwich and they sit down on a small bench. Do you always carry around extra sandwiches? It's for my, my partner. I get tired of bringing him flowers and I know he loved ham on rye, but I'm sure he'd, love, he'd like it just as much as you have. He'd like that you have it. Teresa looks at the headstone. A man's name, Daniel, is engraved on it. Teresa looks at him for a long time. Finally, she takes a huge bite of the sandwich. You just leave a perfectly good sandwich in a cemetery? <laughs> it helps me to remember how he was before, how he was with me. I was a junkyard dog, feral. He gave me a home, gave me love. If he hadn't... I hate coming here. All I can think of is her in the ground, her cold body just rotting and decaying. That's vivid. As they sit in silence, chewing, looking out at the graves. Interior police station holding cell night. The sound of keys in the cell door. Nikki opens one eye and sits up on the cot where he's been sleeping. Sergeant Vanna enters, and he sits on the cot on the other side of the room. Nikki, unsure of what to do, turns and phases him. 
Don't I get a lawyer or something? Vanna laughs and shakes his head. Just shut up. I'm not saying nothing shut until you. The fuck. <laughs> <laughs> You know how many people get a second chance when they screw up as bad as you did? You know, I knew your mother. I never met anyone like her. And there was a time when... Uh... Nikki looks at Vanna, surprised. But Vanna thinks better of it. Better, Vanna thinks better of following this train of thought, and he stops himself. She was a good woman, all right? So, for her, you're going to walk out of here today a changed man. You're going to get up, and you're going to go to school... And when the bell rings, you're going to get out the classifieds and start looking for a real job. Failing that, you're going to go door-to-door every business in the neighborhood. You're going to do that every day until you have a job. And after that, it's going to be school, job, sleep until you graduate. And you're not going to be a problem for me anymore. Are you? Are you? (laughs) Good. Interior police station hallway. Vanna unlocks a door at the end of the hall and holds it open for Nikki. Thanks. I'm not doing this for you. <laughs> Exterior Teresa's house tonight. Teresa hurries across the park. She thinks she hears footsteps. She stops and looks around, but nothing. Just the inky darkness trying to swallow her. As she heads through the alley, a car turns in, drives slowly behind her. The car flashes its headlights, and she starts to run, her heart hammering in her chest. She reaches her back gate and struggles to open it. It's stuck. The car drives slowly past her as she rushes into her yard. She runs even faster, pulling on the back door. It's locked. The back door is never locked. She fumbles for her keys and drops them and finally opens the back door. Inside, we see a light go on, then another one, and then another one. Interior Teresa's house, night. Various shots of a spooked Teresa turning every light in the house on one by one. Kitchen, bathroom, Gus's bedroom, etc. Then she sits on the floor by by the entrance, hugging her knees to her chest. She stares at the door, wishing for the sound of keys, willing to open it when... Someone's pounding at the door. She jumps out of her skin, gets up, and peers through the peephole. Teresa's point of view. Anthony, Kimberly, and Dawn on the porch. Clearly, they haven't slept. They're passing a bottle, and Anthony's eye fills the keyhole. Open the door. Exterior, Teresa's house, night. He pounds again, and the door swings open. Anthony smiles, but his eyes are on fire. You guys scared the shit out of me. We're looking for Hector. He's not here. No shit. Confused, Teresa looks to Anthony. He shoves the bottle in her face. I know where he is. Are you in or out? I... Teresa looks at them, knowing that this is trouble, but she's alone. She's scared. She hesitates, then takes a long pull from the bottle. Exterior, Oriel Oral Avenue children of the night. They walk down the street with purpose, Teresa watching them, searching their faces for any sign of what's about to happen. Where are we going? But Anthony's lost in his own thoughts. He's focused. Teresa sees a beer can, starts to kick it down the street. She kicks it two times, a third, then Don stomps on it and kicks it away. Teresa stops. Can somebody please tell me where we're going? To get Hector back from that piece of shit faggot that took him. Cops aren't doing shit, so we will. Exterior street night. The crew walks down the street. The surroundings look familiar, but then again, in this neighborhood, most of the houses look alike. And there it is. A small tracked house. It's dark. Where are we? Anthony takes one last drink. He pulls out the rag and douses it with alcohol, stuffs it into his pocket. He digs deep into his pocket and pulls out a lighter, and a light comes on inside. Teresa grabs his hand. Whose house is this? Don't be such a little girl. Teresa snatches the lighter away. Anthony, furious, shoves her to the ground. The lighter skitters across the pavement. Teresa looks at her palms, now scraped and seeping blood. Anthony snatches up the lighter and turns on her. He deserves it. The homo molesting that piece of... That homo... 
the homo molesting piece of shit. I told you what he is. I know what he does. Anthony sparks the lighter. Teresa sees a lone figure appear in the window. Another light clicks on. The curtains draw back, revealing Bill. He peers out into the night. From his vantage point, it's too dark to make much out. Just shadowy figures at the edge of the lawn. From the lawn, Don sees the curtain moves and her resolve starts to crack. She's right, Anthony. Let's just go. You, you can leave anytime you want. The front door opens. Oh, shit. Come on, Anthony. We gotta go. Screw that. Anthony lights the cloth and it bursts into flame. He cocks his arm. No! Teresa rushes at him, catching his arm in forward motion and causes the bottle to fall short of its target. It explodes on the sidewalk and fingers of flame shoot across the lawn. Bill is through the door, charging toward them. Hey! The gang scatters like mice into the night. We follow Teresa as she runs, fast as her legs will take her, her heart pounding, terror in her eyes. Tears streak across her cheeks as she runs, runs, runs until she glances back over her shoulder and sees that she's alone. Disoriented, she looks at the street sign for Summerdale. Still scared, her chest heaving, her body racked by adrenaline, she keeps moving. Suddenly, headlights turn the corner ahead of her, come straight toward her, and she freezes. Light fills the air, bathes her in their harsh glow, and then disappears, replaced by the taillights of a black Delta 88, so Teresa starts to jog. Exterior, Teresa's house, night. Teresa reaches the front steps, starts, starts toward the door when the sound of footsteps race up behind her. She turns to see a figure racing toward her out of the darkness and she screams. It's Anthony. He grabs her arm and violently shakes her. What did you do? What the fuck did you do? She tries to break free, but now he has both of her arms. You ruined it. You ruined everything. Let me go. You just want to let him get away? Please. Get away, please. Anthony shoves her to the ground. He raises his hand and just as he's about to strike her. Yo, what the fuck are you doing? Anthony turns around to see Nikki in the doorway behind Teresa. Anthony releases Teresa, takes a step back, but he's still defiant. That's when Nikki steps into the glow of the streetlight and now Anthony can see the baseball bat in his hand. Get out of here, asshole. When Anthony doesn't move, Nikki takes a step toward him, raises the bat over his shoulder, itching to use it. Now. Convinced, Anthony scrambled backwards, turns, and runs. Nikki lowers the bat and holds out his hand to Teresa, and she takes it. You okay? Where's Dad? Interior hospital room morning. Gus slumps in bed, an IV in his arm. His face is badly beaten, and he winces when he breathes too deeply. He stares out the window next to his bed, and he hears footsteps turn to the door. Teresa. She stops in her tracks at the sight of him. He smiles weakly and waves her over. There's my kukla. Teresa moves to him hesitantly, her eyes cast toward the ground. She gives him a light peck on the cheek, but before she can move away, he grabs her and hugs her tight. Marambo. I'm not a baby. He gently lets her go. Right, of course. But you are still my baby. He chuckles and winces from the pain, but notices the concern on her face. Teresa, sit, please. You're making me nervous. She sits at the foot of the bed, but he pats the space next to him. No, no, here. She moves the chair next to the bed. Sergeant Vanna appears in the doorway. Gus puts on a brave face, but tears well in his eyes. Bumpus? You are a smart girl. You got that from your mother. <laughs> Obviously. Gus takes her hand and strokes the top with his thumb. Your mom had a big heart. She was so proud of you. She had big plans for you. Did you know that? She wanted you to have a big life. I mean, she wanted that for all of us, but then she left me to figure it out. Gus chokes up. His emotion frightens her, and Teresa leans in. And I didn't. She hugs him fiercely. I, I didn't know how. I'm sorry. I don't know how. Gus wraps his arms around her. Daddy, it's going to be fine. You, Nikki, Yaya, me, we're gonna be okay you won't have to worry about me i promise they hold on tightly for a long moment and he gently releases her he looks her in the eye prepared to break the news about nikki teresa 
your brother. I couldn't get him to come, so I took the bus. Maybe tomorrow. Gus's eyes dart to Sergeant Vanna. Gus's face shows a flicker of a flicker of a smile as he connects the dots, realizing what Vanna has done. Maybe. Keep him out of trouble, okay? Okay. Teresa backs away from the bed and glances at Vanna. I'll get you home. Give us a second, okay? Teresa nods and leaves the room, and Vanna walks to the bed. Thanks for that. Vanna nods, pulls his handcuffs out from under his jacket. Gus hold out, holds out his wrists, and Vanna fastens a handcuff around it, locks the other end to the railing on the bed. Interior classroom day. Teresa slumps in her seat, exhausted. Anthony and Hector are notably absent. Teresa turns around to look for Mike, and his desk is also empty. She's just about to get up to find him when the clock strikes nine and Mrs. K enters. Teresa sits back down, worried. Exterior, Oriole Park School. Teresa emerges, scanning the yard at the edge of the school grounds as Mike and the teen from the diner. She sees him notice her, and he quickly pushes a dime bag into the other teen's hand and pockets the cash that the kid hands him. Mike takes a step towards her. Hey. But Teresa frowns and shakes her head. She turns around and goes back inside without a word to him. Interior, hospital room, day. Gus is asleep. Slowly, he wakes up, rolls over to find Nikki passed out in the chair next to him, and Gus watches his son sleep. Tentatively, gently, he takes Nick's, Nikki's hand. Nikki's eyes flutter open, but before he's even fully awake, he instinctively jerks his hand away. I just, uh, <clears throat> I, I came in and you were asleep. I didn't think I should wake you. Thank you. Nikki can't recall his dad ever saying, thank you, before. He nods. Sure. Uncomfortable silent presses down on both of them. Finally, Nikki stretches, stands up, and puts his jacket on. I, uh, I gotta go. You got this thing? Yeah, t- sure. W- wouldn't want you to be late. Nikki pats the bed next to Gus, then walks around the foot of the bed and heads for the door. As the hand touches the doorknob... Sometimes, I think when I'm old, I'll remember the back of your head better than your face. <laughs> Nikki shakes his head, irritated. He starts to open the door. Don't. Please. Nikki wants to bolt. He wants to run. But after what feels like an eternity, he turns and walks back to the chair. He sits and they fall back into an uncomfortable silence. Gus looks his son over and Nikki pretends not to notice until... You need a haircut. You look like a hippie. (laughs) Nikki bristles and sees a hint of a smile. Nikki grins, Gus laughs, and Nikki is surprised to find himself laughing too. Gus stops abruptly and Nikki turns to the door to see Vanna with two officers standing in the doorway behind him. I'm sorry, Gus. It's time. As they enter, Nikki moves around the bed, gets between Gus and the police officers, but Gus puts his hands on Nikki's arm. Inai, Dax, Eos. Exterior hospital, dusk. Teresa walks up the sidewalk to the hospital, her arms hugged tight around her body. She needs to see her dad. A loud squealing of tires turns her head, and Nikki's car tears out of the parking lot, speeds into the street behind Teresa. Something's not right, so Teresa hurries inside. Interior hospital hallway, dusk. Teresa approaches Gus's room, and an orderly steps out, carrying a pile of sheets. Teresa slows, and she notices a police officer signing a form at the nurse's station. At the end of the hallway, she sees a door slowly swing shut through the glass. Is that Gus? Interior hospital room, dusk. She steps through the door into Gus's room and the bed is empty. No sheets, no pillows, no Gus. Interior hospital hallway, dusk. Teresa runs into the hallway and turns toward the closing door. Daddy! Gus turns, sees her through the glass and the pain on his face is palpable. Teresa rushes toward him, but the police officer moves to intercept her. Please, don't leave me, please. Gus is pulled away from the door. Teresa, I'll be back, baby. I'll be back. Daddy! But Gus is gone, disappearing down the hallway. The police officer moves toward her and Teresa backs away. When the officer takes another step, she turns and flees down the hall as he calls after her. Interior salon night. Alicia is sweeping up hair, her back to the window when... Jesus. Karen um, sp- speaks that, and Alicia turns to see what Karen's looking at. 
Teresa, sitting on the curb outside the salon, leaned up against a car. She's a mess of tears, snot, and blind rage. So Karen nudges her. Go. She can't be out there like that. Alicia, apprehensive, puts down the broom. Take her home if you have to. Just don't bring her in here. (laughs) Exterior salon. Teresa looks up as Alicia exits. Shit. She gets up quickly and starts to walk away. Right. Like you didn't come here on purpose. (laughs) Teresa doesn't stop. Fine then. Just walk away. I don't know you, remember? Oh, you're such a baby. Teresa keeps walking, finally. Stop, just stop, okay? That's what Teresa desperately wants to hear. She stops. Alicia slowly plods to where Teresa is. Alicia leans against a parked car. Teresa hesitates, then joins her. They lean in silence for a long time. I heard about what happened. Yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. You know what I mean? No. That's probably just the bowl you smoke for breakfast talking. <laughs> Teresa lets out a snort of disgust and pushes off of the car as if to leave. Kidding. Just kidding. Jeez. Teresa leans back into the car. I thought it would feel different, you know, to be, like, cool. To not care about anything, to have friends. That stings. Teresa realizes what she said. I thought we were friends. That's not what I meant. But now it's Alicia's turn to storm off, continue the dance. Teresa tries to grab her arm, but Alicia pulls it away and starts to run. Teresa runs after her, but Alicia won't stop until finally she doesn't know what else to do. Teresa tackles her. The girls tumble to the ground, and Alicia angrily fights to turn her over, gets out from under Teresa, but before she can, Teresa hugs her tight. Get off of me. No. In spite of herself, Alicia laughs and softens. Seriously, you're crushing me. Teresa rolls off of her, and the girls sit next to each other on the grass. I'm sorry. They sit in silence. Teresa absentmindedly pulls up blades of grass, and out of nowhere, Alicia punches her in the arm. Teresa winces, and she rubs it. That was for the dog shit. (laughs) Interior lunchroom the next day. The lunchroom is full of kids. Teresa enters and notices Alicia sitting alone and reading a book. She smiles, starts to walk over, passing Anthony, who shoots his leg into the aisle, tripping her. Teresa hits the ground hard with a loud crash, and her tray skids across the floor, scattering food everywhere. She looks up to see Anthony's big, dumb face contorted with laughter. And something snaps. She stands, filled with righteous anger and determination. Pick it up. What? In the background, Alicia stops, raises her eyebrows, and puts the book down. This is going to be good. Pick it up. No. Pick up the tray and give it back to me. Anthony laughs at her. Keeping her eyes on him, she leans down to the tray herself. He grabs her arm, and Teresa turns on him. And he knows immediately he's made a mistake. She smacks him with it and then shoves him with all of her might, sending him reeling backwards onto the table. All activity in the cafeteria stops, and all eyes are on Teresa. What the hell? He starts to get up, and Teresa, sh- Teresa shoves knocks him off of his chair. When he tries to get up again, she goes in for the kill. She knees him in the balls. Hard. Anthony hits the floor with a howl of pain and curls into a ball, rolling around on the ground. Unrelenting, Teresa grinds her knee into Anthony's crotch. Leave me alone. Leave Alicia alone. Leave everyone alone. She grabs his face as he struggles against her. You hear me? Yeah. She leans in and digs her knee deeper. I said, do you hear me? Yes, 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 I hear hear you. Teresa pushes away from him and stands. (laughs) Anthony struggles to his knees, and for good measure, Teresa kicks Anthony in the butt, pushing him back onto his belly. She picks up her tray and turns to find Mrs. K standing right behind her, her hands on her hips. Come with me, young lady. Interior hallway day. Mrs. K walks down the hallway with Teresa trailing her like a prisoner being led to the gallows. What a rotten little shit that kid is. <laughs> what? If anyone deserves a public ass whooping, 
It's him. <laughs> Interior classroom day. Teresa follows Mrs. K into the room looking like someone who just discovered their dog could talk. Mrs. K motions to a chair next to the desk. Have a seat. Teresa sinks into the chair uncomfortably because she's not used to talking to teachers one-on-one. You don't look right. What's up with you? Teresa doesn't answer. She just shrugs. You know, I'm going to have to keep you in here long enough that the other kids think you're deep in it. <laughs> so we may as well have a conversation. <laughs> Sorry. Things are super. Dumb question, I know. I can only imagine how hard it's been since... You know, your friend Alicia just got accepted into Whitney Young. Really? Yeah, well, she spent her entire life studying for that stupid test. She's a determined young lady. I've seen flashes of that in you, too. With your aptitude for math and science, you could do really well there. No, it's too late. I happen to know that they hold some spots open. I could write a recommendation for you. Teresa doesn't have the tools to process this kindness, so she stays mute, the wheels in her head spinning. Mrs. K leans in and looks Teresa directly in the eye. Listen, I know that it seems like the end of the world, but it's not. There's more out there for you, Teresa. I'm offering you an opportunity. You should take it. Teresa's eyes fill with something like hope. Exterior Foster Avenue day. Winter. Snow blankets the ground, the roofs, the streets. People bundled in winter gear weather the cold to reach. Exterior St. Eugene's Parish day. A cross extends from a spire up toward the barren branches overhanging the church. A line streams through the front doors. Interior St. Eugene's Church Day. A banner is draped across the entrance of the church. Holiday potluck, all are welcome. The entire neighborhood is there, no matter their denomination. Gacy, Bill, the lunch ladies, Alicia, and her entire family. Don, Kimberly, Anthony, even the old-timers from the bar. Everyone except... Vanna. Exterior Gacy's house, same. We see Vanna, and he stands on Gacy's front step, ringing the doorbell. He doesn't expect an answer, and he doesn't get one. Vanna looks around at the surrounding houses, seeing no one, so he walks to the side of the house. Interior St. Eugene's Church, same. The community room is filled with talk and laughter as everyone fills paper plates with food from the potluck dinner and shares a meal with their neighbors. Mike follows his mom, embarrassed as she flirts with every single man in the room. He searches for Teresa, but she's nowhere to be seen. Exterior Gacy's house, alley, same. Vanna approaches Gacy's garbage cans. After taking another quick look around, he takes off the lid of the first one, starts to sift through it. Cereal box empty bags of concrete mix and one of the bags is different he pulls it out examines it limestone interior st eugene's church same mrs ruzak stands alone at the edge of the crowd scanning the faces she smiles politely when approached but doesn't engage her eyes are watching john wayne gacy disheveled his cheeks flushed his clothes slept in people move past him he moves politely but also doesn't engage his gaze catches hers, and their eyes start seeing straight through, and his eyes start seeing straight through her. A young boy tugs at his shirt sleeve, and he instantly snaps out of it, turns on his charm. Gacy tousles his hair, pulls a quarter out of his ear. Exterior Gacy's house alley, same. Vanna digs deeper, sticking his hand in for something. A mold-covered sandwich. He grimaces and looks for something to wipe his hand off. Interior St. Eugene's Church, same. Bill enters, and as he makes his way through the crowd, he notices Gacy standing next to a window. He's watching something outside, his demeanor, nervous, twitchy. Bill approaches and nods hello, but Gacy looks through him as if he's, seen, if he's never seen him before in his entire life. Without a word, Gacy walks away, and Bill glances out of the window. A car is parked just outside, with two men wearing baseball caps and leather jackets leaning against it. The men watch the crowd as they rub their hands together, trying to stay warm. Exterior 
Gacy's house alley same. Van now spots a rag on the ground behind the trash cans. He picks it up and starts to wipe his hand off, and a car's door slams behind him. Hey, what the fuck are you doing? Vanna turns and sees a plainclothes police officer approaching and flashes his badge. I'm the fuck following up on a missing kid. Listen, we've got this guy under surveillance. We can't have you here right now. Which kid are you looking for? This hits Vanna like a ton of bricks. He frowns. There's more than one. Exterior Rolling Stone Records night. Mike stands in front of the record store. The garish neon lights pulsing behind him accentuate the hollowness of his cheeks and dark circles under his eyes. He pulls out a cigarette and finishes, fishes in his pocket for the lighter or for some matches. Gacy holds out a lighter and sparks it up. Mike lights up his cigarette and nods. Thanks. I could use something to take the edge off. Yeah, man, we all could. You got any weed? Mike looks Gacy over. He looks like a guy in need of some taking of the edge off. He's, in spite of the cold weather, he's red-faced and sweaty. Dude, you look like a fucking narc. Gacy pulls out a large wad of bills. Trust me, kid. I'm not. Mike shrugs. Where's your car? Gacy starts walking towards his car, and Mike follows behind him. And as he turns around to see if anyone is tailing them, Teresa and Alicia exit the store. Alicia's carrying a copy of, a copy of the Grease soundtrack. Teresa spots Mike and recognizes Gacy's car. Hey! Mike turns around, and he shakes his head and keeps walking. Alicia watch, watches from a distance as Teresa runs up to Mike and grabs him. Gacy, sensing trouble, gets in the car. What are you doing? I was just about to make a sale. Are you crazy? Just look at that guy. He's not right. Teresa pulls him away as Gacy backs out. Mike turns to watch Gacy's car swing onto the street, and he groans. Oh, man. He could have given me a ride. Mike stalks back toward the store, and Teresa's... Teresa falling behind. Neither of them notice as Gacy pulls the car into a spot on the street and turns the engine off, watching. So now you're, what, dealing in front of the record store? <laughs> Wait, you're judging me? Your dad's a low-life bookie, and your brother, he's doing the same thing I am. He immediately knows he's gone too far. Her lip trembles, and she shoots daggers from her eyes. Let's go, T. Teresa. God, I'm so stupid. I thought you were one of the good ones. I don't have anything else. I don't have anyone else. I gotta go. She turns to join Alicia, but... Please. She stops, but can't look at him or her resolve will break. No, I can't. Just too big of a problem to solve. Interior Gacy's car night. Gacy watches as Mike, shattered, takes a step back. Alicia puts an arm around Alicia's Alicia puts an arm around Alicia's shoulder and they walk off. Mike watches them go for a long beat before his shoulders slump and he takes a seat on the curb. He fishes out another cigarette, realizing he doesn't have a lighter, and curses the sky. Key in the ignition, the car engine roars to life. Exterior, Rolling Stone Records night. Teresa stops, lingers, and senses something's not right. Mike is fading into the distance, headed in the opposite direction with Gacy's car creeping down the street behind him like a shark swimming slowly, circling its prey. Alicia grabs her arm. Come on, T, let's go! Teresa looks at her and looks back to where Mike was... But he and Gacy's car are now gone. Exterior Oriole Park neighborhood day. Morning. A slow succession of shots of the Oriole Park neighborhood moving from house to house. Interior Teresa's house day. Teresa walks sleepy and waits. Teresa walks sleepy-eyed to the kitchen, rubbing her face. She's barely awake, still in the t-shirt and boxers. Then out of nowhere, wham! Nikki comes hurriedly through the hall, already dressed, a piece of toast in his mouth, throwing on a heavy jacket. Sorry, dummy. What the hell? Where are you going? Uh, late for a job, construction gig. Exterior Teresa's house day. Nikki bursts out, panicked, pulling on his shirt and coat as he runs past us and disappears. Interior Teresa's house kitchen day. The house is silent as Teresa goes to pour herself some cereal. Suddenly, the police scanner crackles to life. Teresa jumps. Code three, 
8213 West Summerdale Avenue. All available officers, please respond. Exterior Summerdale Day. Halfway down the block and Nicky's already out of breath, but he can't stop. He shoves his hand deep, his, deep into his pocket and pulls out a card. It reads John W. Gacy, PDM, Contractors Corporation, General Contractors, and the address... 8213 Summerdale. In the distance, a police car glides by, then another and another. Nikki is oblivious because he's too busy checking house numbers. He doesn't like what he sees. Fuck. He begins to pick up the pace and begins to run. Exterior Summerdale and Washington Day. Nikki stops at a cross street and glances down at the car. Besi- behind him, a police siren bursts to life. Nikki's head jerks up and a squad car blazes past him, disappearing down the street. Nikki laughs nervously and crosses the street, and as he reaches the other side, his expression changes from relief to confusion. In the distance, a sea of flashing red lights. He stops, and that's when he notices a sea of people, confused, stumbling from their homes, advancing down the street like moths toward a flame. Before he can change his mind to turn back, he's swallowed up by them, moving slowly, inevitably toward exterior Gacy's house day. A police line guards the perimeter of the house as an army of emergency personnel swarm in and out of the house. TV crews, reporters surge, shout questions at the officers, holding them back. Suddenly, an almost surreal hush falls over the scene. Mirror, old film footage of police wheeling gurneys with body bags out of John Wayne Gacy's house. The hush turns into murmurs, and the murmurs grow louder, turning into outrage and anger as police pull Gacy down the driveway. His expression is that of a repentant child caught in the act. Nikki's face fills with dawning horror as flashbulbs flash and wash the scene with unnatural light. John looks into the crowd, his eyes distanced and un- distant and unfocused. He disappears into the back of a waiting squad car. The onlookers are bathed in red as the lights of the squad car jump to life and the car moves slowly through them, breaking free and disappearing into the distance. The crowd begins to disperse and the group surrounding Nikki retreats to their lawns to watch from a safe distance, leaving him standing alone in the middle of the street. And we fade to black. The only sound, a police scanner. We have the suspect in custody. Repeat, the suspect is in custody. Then we begin to hear overlapping audio from news reporters. Grizzly discovery at the home of a northwest suburban contractor. Human remains continue to be carried out. Are expected to charge John Wayne Gacy with multiple counts of murder. Interior Teresa's house day. Teresa sits alone in the living room, glued to the TV in horror as news footage from Gacy's arrest in 1978 plays. Many are unidentified, but the victims appear to be mostly males between 14 to 18 years of age. Teresa gets up quickly, snatches her coat, and slips it on and runs to the door. She throws open the door to find Yaya pulling her bag up the front steps. Yaya turns to her, surprised. Teresa throws herself into Yaya's arms. Tears flood her eyes, and just like that, she takes off running down the street, leaving her baffled grandmother behind. Interior, Alicia's house day. Alicia and her family eat dinner. They talk over each other, laugh, compete for the last table scraps, and Alicia's dad notices the news report and hushes everyone. Interior, hardware store day. Bill watches the footage stoically on the black and white TV above the front counter, and an image of Gacy appears on the screen. A jingle signals a customer entering the store. Bill turns away from the TV. Interior, Vanna's office day. Vanna sits on the edge of his desk, watching the precinct TV. Mrs. Ruzak appears on screen, surrounded by reporters, and Vanna leans in, turning up the volume. Do you have any words for the families of the other victims? There are no words. What about Mr. Gacy? Do you have anything you'd like to say to him? This stops her in her tracks, and the camera closes in as she struggles to speak, choking back tears of grief and rage. She looks directly into the camera. Interior interior Mike's house day. The camera pulls back from a close-up of the flickering television screen to reveal Mike's empty living room. God help you, Mr. Gacy. God help you. 
interior Teresa's house living room day. Yaya sits on the couch in front of the television, tears in her eyes in a state of disbelief. As the report ends, Nikki opens the front door. Nikki's face is a mask of shock, anger, and barely contained grief. He struggles with an armful of two-by-fours. Nikki starts through the living room focus, but Yaya stands, intercepts him, and she takes his face in her hands. He breaks just a little, and he drops his head. Yaya kisses the top of his head, and gently she lets him go. Tears well in the corner of his eyes, and slowly he turns and walks through the kitchen and opens the back door. Through the open back door, we see Nikki drop to his knees by the broken flower boxes. In the kitchen, the sound of a chair sliding back from the table. Footsteps move toward the door, and we see Gus's silhouette in the doorway as he steps outside. Exterior, Teresa's house, brickyard. As Nikki rifles through a toolbox, Gus slowly approaches, stopping just behind him. He puts his hand on Nikki's shoulder just as Nikki finds what he's looking for. Uh, without looking up, Nikki holds out a hammer to his father. Gus takes it, he kneels next to his son, and together they begin to mend the broken boxes. Exterior, Mike's house day. Snow covers the house and sidewalk, no signs of life. Interior, Mike's house day. We feel the emptiness, the lifelessness of the house from inside. And as we hear someone pounding at the front door, interior, Mike's house day. Teresa stops knocking and looks around. Fear rises in her eyes and she can't breathe. She's forgotten how. She has to tell herself how to breathe in and out. She walks around to the side of the house and peeks in the window. Interior, Mike's bedroom day. Teresa's small, scared eyes peer into the darkness and a single terrible thought on constant loop runs in her head. Interior, Mike's house day. The red glow of police lights momentarily light up Teresa, then disappear as the cruiser whirs by. Teresa races to the street and watches at the car swallowed by the darkness and in a full-on panic with her heart drumming against her chest she starts to run she has to find mike exterior street day Teresa sprints down the streets tears welling in her eyes as fear consumes her exterior oriole park she stops at the edge of the park her eyes searching the night the only sound is her breath amplified by the silence she slumps over her hands on her thighs as she pulls air into her lungs and forces it back out it's time to face the truth mike is dead then Snow crunches behind her, and she spins around to find... Hey, I was looking for you. Teresa is overwhelmed with relief, unable to speak, caught between laughter and tears. They stand facing one one another, silent for a few beats as Mike slowly closes the gap between them. Mike takes Teresa's face in his hands, and they kiss. It's tender, delicate, and perfect. After a moment, they stop, they look at each other in silence, stunned by the power of what they both felt, and finally, Teresa buries her head in Mike's chest as he pulls her to him, both of them holding tightly to their ports in the storm. Fade out. Super. Chiron. John Wayne Gacy confessed to murdering 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978. 26 victims were found buried in the crawl space of his home. He was found guilty and sentenced to death and was executed on May 10th, 1994. Woo! Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, we are a little short on time, so we're going to take a very, very quick break, and our amazing writers will be calling us. So for those watching live, stay tuned, and we'll see you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our table read of Oriel Park, written by writers Amelia uh, Delos and Eric Anderson, who we have on this phone right now. Amelia and Erica, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having us. You that got was it. Delightful. You guys did a great job with the read. Thank you so much. It's such a good script for Halloween. It was kind of fun for us to dive into that creepy territory with John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> um, that actually does lead me to my first question, though. When I saw that I was reading a script about and by John Wayne Gacy, I expected it for him to be our protagonist. And really, he's mm-hmm. kind of just the frame story. I want to know why that choice, because it's, it's a big choice to make. Um, well, 
the story is a personal story for me. I grew up in the neighborhood, and he lived about four or five blocks from where I grew up. Wow. And um, so it's a real personal story. So when we talked to um, our producer, Jen Shearer, and I was telling her the story, it just seemed like a given that it would come from this sort of young girl loosely based on me and my experiences growing up in the neighborhood. So that was sort of our way into the story. Um, and Gacy was sort of the boogeyman, the monster next door kind mm-hmm. of idea. So that's that's how we came to the story. Yeah. Well, it's much more of a coming-of-age story. Like, it almost feels like something I could see Spielberg directing in the 80s. Um, was that something that influenced <laughs> you guys? <laughs> You have a time machine? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's Spielberg a compliment. Now. I want to emphasize that I love that narrative. And I actually think it's back in style right now. If you look at Stranger Things, you look at It. Well, I mean, even with right. the, yeah. the Lovely Bones, that movie, The mm-hmm. Lovely Bones that they did, that yep. was, I, that, I yep. was getting that feeling of that. Yeah. Would you say that was an influence for you? Well, we okay, I'll let Eric go. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd say that style is somewhat of an influence, but I think what we were really cognizant of and the reason why we wrote it the way we did was that there have been a lot of sensationalized films about serial killers like Gacy, Dahmer. All, there was that series in the late 90s, early 2000s that really went exploitative. And so we wanted to do more something more like Summer Sand that kind of gave you like the feel of what it was like to live in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, those those stories from the 80s did that. A lot of Spielberg movies have that lived-in sense. Like, you you still you watch them now, and you feel what it was like living back then. Yeah, I think, like, tone and mood and atmosphere are so essential to this script working. I'm assuming you guys are in Chicago right now, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Chicago feels like such a viscerally important part of this script. And what's really interesting is we actually read another horror pilot by an actress named Shauna Kofed that was also set in Chicago. And I think in both scripts, Chicago has such like an imposing atmosphere on the work. Do you guys think Chicago is inherently a creepy city? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has a big personality, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're typically, you see New York a lot in film because, you know, that's just the way it is. But I think, you know, Chicago is a burgeoning film town. There's a lot of independent filmmakers living and working here. Um, So I think you're going to probably see more stories where Chicago plays a bigger role just Mm -hmm. because of the community that's growing here. So... Absolutely. Yeah. I also think there's just a lot of gothic history to Chicago. When you when you really look back at it, there's a lot of serial killers that actually <laughs> come from Chicago yeah. or did a lot of their work in Chicago. So it, it already has that kind of built into it as yeah. a city. Yeah. Absolutely. I never really thought of it before you mentioned it. That's yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, I used to look H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. Was this hard for you uh, emotionally to write because you did live right there and this is something that you grew up with? Ask that one more time, Rox. Was this challenging? Yeah, um, it's like, it was really difficult during the reading for me because it is such a personal story and it does feel like a very, like a live exposed nerve. Um, A lot of times I, you know, when you write, it's more fiction, you're sort of creating the world from scratch, you're creating the characters 
but this was a world I really knew. Like the Gus character was a combination of my father and my friend's father who hmm. was a low-level bookie, like working in the neighborhood. Um, Mrs. Ruzik was my lunch lady. Oh. Um, she was on TV. That's, you know, the teacher. Like a lot of these characters were built on people that we I knew. So it, it was tricky. I mean, it, it was kind of going through some territory and terrain and you know it's always fun reliving junior high is always a blast <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so it was it was kind of tough to write and it was just like I said, it was like listening to guys read the words and kind of bringing the characters to life it was kind of like a raw exposed nerve in a lot of ways do you ever remember seeing john like walking around the neighborhood or anything like that <sighs> um i didn't Honestly, um, you know, for me, really the Miss Ruzik character, because it was based on um, our lunch lady. I remember seeing her on the news at night, and uh, she was in and around that courthouse and was very uh, vigilant about um, making sure that Gacy um, was prosecuted. And because, I mean, you really have to think this all happened before you had like a missing persons registry. Like a lot of the things that we take for granted now in 2017, because of this case, you had like a missing children's registry and a reporting and that kind of thing. So it was a, a really different time back then, you know. I can really tell that you were tied to the Miss Rusick's character because she was one of my favorite characters in the script. Um, and the imagery that you use, like my heart just bled for her. Yeah. Um, I just congratulate you on, on writing such a, a brilliant character because she was one of my favorites in the script, and Roxy, you played her very well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, 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 she's one of mine, too, and I think that, like, a lot of times when we see these char- these stories in the news, we forget about the families, and we forget about the people behind the stories that are hurting. These are their children. Um, these are their brothers and sisters that have gone missing, and I think things become so sensationalized that we forget there's a community that is affected by this one person who's becomes notorious and gets all this all the attention all the attention yeah Yeah. that's an important point to raise and i think it raises an interesting question of you don't want to sensationalize a serial killer or murder or discredit the families and yet you guys have written a film about it so how did you manage walking that tightrope of wanting to honor sort of the history and coming of age narrative of this story while still using John Wayne Gacy's horrific serial killing psychology as a backdrop I think that was the the delicate balance was trying to make sure that all the characters who weren't Gacy were deeply human and mm. deeply felt so that people would understand the horror of what he actually did. Yeah. And because that's, you know, it was, it, it was our intention from the outset just to make people understand that this is not like these crimes, they get the headlines, but the people that are left behind are wounded. All the, all the family are deeply, deeply wounded. And I mean, we're still getting stories today of, of victims still being identified or people who went missing that they were concerned were, were Gacy's uh, casualties who were turning up in Montana or Florida or somewhere that didn't realize that their family thought that they were a victim. And so it's we see his picture in the paper every couple of weeks still. Literally, yeah, there's a Gacy story. And then anytime people find out that we're doing this story or we talk about it, they have a story about him. So... I mean, in some of it, you wonder if it's a little bit of an urban legend, but the, the 
they're still identifying bodies, they're still digging up yards, they're still trying to figure out and identify. I mean, can you imagine 30 years later not knowing if you buried a child or not? Or, yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's devastating. I, I think that also, while it does feel fresh for you guys still, I think you guys waited a very respectful amount of time, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons that they were able to talk about this story that uh, in that kind of way. Uh, unlike similar, like the Boston bomber uh, and Wahlberg and people, Bostonians being really hurt and upset because it was just too soon, when you wait decades right. yeah. to talk about something, then you can look at it in a different light. It's more—it's a more complete story that you need to tell because it's not like everybody knows about it. Honestly, I didn't know about this story prior mm-hmm. to reading this. So I think it's something that you guys were very respectful about uh, and you did highlight the families, I think, in a unique way that honored them very well. Mm-hmm. Amelia, if it's not too personal, and feel free to not answer if it is, I feel like a huge theme of this script is loss of innocence. Like, I feel like as these teenagers come of age, it's sort of their loss of innocence that brings them into adulthood. Do you feel like John Wayne Gacy's presence in your neighborhood sort of initiated your loss of innocence during the 70s? Yeah, that was one of the many things, but yeah, definitely. And that's exactly, um, I'm so like heartened that that you picked up on that because that's really what it's about like Mm -hmm. for me the story is about losing innocence like people talk about where they were when um john kennedy was shot or people will talk about 9-11 where they were when they saw the planes crashing into the towers and i think we all have sort of those moments that we sort of like oh yeah that was the moment and yeah i think just realizing that you do that something this horrific can happen and not only happen but happen like five blocks away from where you live is sort of yeah for sure i just have to applaud you because it's such an interesting way to sort of double the narrative of you know as this teenager is getting to know her immigrant father better and as she's experimenting in drugs and learning about boys there's also this parallel loss of innocence of just realizing that the world is a broken place. I think it's like a very powerful, subtle thing that you guys have done in this script. And it's, you kind of don't feel it until you finish the script. And it all sort of clicks really chillingly into place, I think. Oh, well, thank you. You're Thanks. welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, did you have any questions for us related to our read or anything in the script? What I want to say is that as I was watching this, you guys took me through a range of emotions that I wasn't prepared to feel. So I thank you for that. That's great. That was really that was really a special thing to to see you guys bring this to life. So I wanted to thank you. Yeah, Eric's like I, ha- I totally have the feels right now. <laughs> well, that's a credit to and you, I was right? Sort of like nervously flittering around. It's really hard for me to sit and like hear my work. Yeah, I get very like it's just difficult. But he was just really captivated i think you guys did a really nice job and there's definitely between the the accents and <laughs> the, i mean the there's Greek. a lot so you guys did a good job I, I you know there's just a lot going on there so yeah you guys did a really good job thanks so, a lot thanks for letting us read it yeah. oh thank oh, you, thank you We're so yeah it was really delightful one last question i'm interested to explore is do either of you did either of you grow up in an immigrant family um, I did. So okay. I'm um, Greek. Uh, my parents are first generation, um, and uh, my grandparents were emigrated from Greece. Mm-hmm. And then my grandmother did live with us for a period of time before she went back to Greece. 
you paid such a lovely tribute to her. That Yaya in the uh, script is so wonderful. Yeah, she was a pretty amazing person. She didn't speak any English, so <laughs> was, but you still like got where she was coming from and just had such a good heart. And um, yeah, so yeah. I don't know if Jeff told you this when you guys were communicating, but the creator of our network is Maria Menounos, uh, who's right. obviously a Greek as well, so yeah. I'm, I'm sure she would <laughs> love this Yeah, script. I know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, like, we always, like, I'll, any, like, Greek actor or personality, or, I'm always like, you know she's Greek, or you know he's Greek. <laughs> I know. I know they're Greek, okay? You don't have to know it. I love hyper-aware now. Yeah, he's hyper-aware. Because we kind of consider, like, they're all we're all related yeah the greek mafia (laughs) but here in chicago most greeks are from a very specific area and in greece it's from tripoli so we probably all joke like we're all cousins like (laughs) and i'm using air quotes when i say cousins because we're all from this one area so in greece everyone has sort of emigrated to chicago so yeah. Well, it's cool. It's a really important part of the script. And I think I expected this to be an education on John Wayne Gacy, which to an extent it was. But I think it was much more of an extent, like an education on the Greek teenage experience in inner city Chicago. And like, I, I, I just think it's a, a cool and really honest portrayal of what it's like to be a teenager who's kind of realizing that the world might not be quite as happy as they thought it was. And that's okay. You know, that's honest. And that's really beautiful, I think. Right. Um, Thank you. Any more questions for us before we let you guys go? I really, really appreciate you guys letting us read this on air, especially on Halloween. Thank you. We really appreciate you guys lending your time and talent to the script. And, you know, I know it was not an easy, (laughs) it's not like an easy story to tell. And there's like, it is very dense and there's a lot going on and a lot of characters. So I thought you guys did just such a wonderful job bringing it to life. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and I have a last question. Yeah, please. <laughs> I, I always ask this question. And it's, um, did you guys, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this read before, but if you have or you haven't, was there anything that stood out to you today that you'd like to change or that you liked or didn't like or just things that popped for you too specifically? Um, I thought you guys did a really nice job bringing the humor out because um, there were, it is a heavy script, but we did try to put some little points of light and humor in there and I thought you, you guys did a really nice job bringing that out which I don't know like if you're reading the script versus hearing people read the script out loud I don't know <laughs> if that humor always com- comes across mm-hmm. but I think today like you guys there were a couple points where it was like oh wow they really got really hit on the humor and kind of brought it out so that was nice to, for me yeah, awesome I, I- Go ahead. Like I said, I was overwhelmed, so. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's going to be, like, for lunch for, like, the next hour. <laughs> well, the good news yeah. is this is replayable both as video and audio. <laughs> so you can listen whenever you want. Um, that being said, it's important to me that you guys promote anything else you're working on, because I think as a team, and I'm assuming individually as well, you're both very gifted writers, and I want you to make sure you let folks know where you can be found in case anyone is interested in snatching this thing up. Sure. Well, we're at Cornbread Films. Um, it's bread, B-R-E-D. Yeah, bread as in bread on corn, not <laughs> bread that you eat, <laughs> which people get kind of confused because we're in the Midwest. There's lots of corn here. Oh, yeah, so I'm from there. We're all bread on corn. I feel like you guys found the script on theblacklist.com, so it is still there. Great. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm just going to spell that um, just so people know. It's corn and then B-R-E-D films at gmail.com. <laughs> 
Right, right. Well, that, uh, yeah. Cornbread. And we have a website, too, Cornbread. So. Great. Yeah, Because yeah. we've done a couple of movies previously. And yeah, this is kind of what we're focusing on and right now. Great. Well, it's... um. I haven't, I haven't mentioned, but I'll mention it quickly. This is also a very well-structured script, so writers take note. I think this is a great example of how to circle characters back and show arcs and really all 12 featured characters in this script. So I applaud you guys. I thank you, and you're welcome thank to come you. back on the show whenever you want if you want to send me more work. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> Um, guys, this has been the Unproduced Table right here on the Popcorn Talk Network. Today we read kind of a coming-of-age story framed by John Wayne Gacy called Oriole Park, written by Amelia Estelle Delos and Eric B. Anderson, who we just had on the phone. These scripts that you're seeing came to us heavily discounted from ARA Printing on Magnolia Boulevard in Burbank. They're local in Los Angeles. They're wonderful. They're the best print shop in town. So if you are printing, I'd highly recommend you go there. If you go with the promo code TableRead, you'll get 10% off of your order. If you like today's show, I think I would mention The Wicked Dead, which mm. is another horror script that we read. I think it's episode 10, also set in Chicago. So check that out. Told and you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's creepy. Chicago's creepy. And next week, reading a comedy. So for those of you who are overwhelmed by the emotion, it's a little <laughs> lighter next week. That being said, I'm Jeff Graham. If you guys want to find me online, you can do so at Jeffrey C. Graham. And I have an amazing panel of, I thought, especially on actors today. I think you guys had an amazing show. Does he say that to us every week? I think <laughs> lately I have I, mean, I don't know. I just feel like y'all are gelling lately. Uh, <laughs> really we've good clicked. Read. We've clicked. Yeah. Yes. We've hit our grab. That being said, where can they find you? Yeah. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Steve Kaufman. That is K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N. I do a lot of stuff around here. I tweet about it regularly. Uh, you guys can find me at Andrew Guy on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, that's where I am. I'm Haley O'Connor. That is Haley with two Y's. If you don't use two Y's, you're not two Y's. Haley O'Connor on Twitter. And I'm Timothy Michael. You can find me everywhere at I'm Timothy Mike. I'm Adrian Snow. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Adrian Snow. You can also catch me on Sundays on AfterBuzz for Outlander. I'm Roxy Stryer. You can find me at Roxy Stryer. Guys, thank you so much. We'll see you next week for a comedy. Bye, Hi guys. <laughs> From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.